Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. minutes ago, I was struck by an idea. You know, you guys are very patient with me, right? You indulge me as I go on and on about a wide variety of subjects. Uh, Sometimes you're interested in um, in politics, and I talk about anything but politics. Sometimes you're interested in Star Wars, and I'm talking about Star Trek. Sometimes you're interested in, um, uh, you know, critical race theory, and I'm talking about aliens. Sometimes you're interested in, I don't know, uh, the Jordan Neely case, and I'm talking about pro wrestling. So I thought we might give you a little treat this hour. Now, I have a whole show mapped out, a whole hour mapped out, be precise, of uh, fun subjects, not so fun subjects, serious subjects, uh, personal stories, a whole bunch of things. And um, instead, I thought we would give you a little treat, something we haven't done in a while. I think probably over a year, maybe over a year and a half. Now, almost every other hour of the week, 19 hours of the rest of the week, I control all the subjects that we talk about. Now. I think what we're going to do for the next hour is give you the opportunity to talk about whatever you'd like. So uh, I will – Bob Grant, for instance, used to begin his show by saying this is a program dedicated to the free and open exchange of ideas and of opinions and that somebody's got to say these things and it had to be him. Well, um, we're going to have that same sort of free – open exchange of ideas and of opinions for the next hour. Unless nobody's got anything interesting to say. In which case, trust me, I've got a lot of interesting things to say. So I will ask you the question. What's on your mind? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Now, you might say, well, isn't this just another version of Ask Frank Anything? No. Because what do I always begin Ask Frank Anything on the uh, Friday edition of the program with. I begin with an explanation of what a question is because much like responses on Jeopardy, all of the uh, responses must be in the form of a question. Here, you're under no such restrictions. If you are someone that doesn't feel that I spend enough time talking about the Kennedy assassination, you can discuss it. If you think I'm all wet on chemtrails, you can discuss it. Yesterday we heard from a woman who thought that uh, I i don't remember this occurring, but she thought that it was unfair of me to keep her on hold a, a year ago while I took all these calls from men about breastfeeding. So I, if that's something you want to talk about, now's the time. If there's ever been a subject that you feel I'm not paying proper attention to, you're welcome to bring it up. 
You're welcome to ask a question. You're welcome to make a statement. It's sort of uh, an ex- a combination of 15 seconds of fame, although you're not limited to 15 seconds, and ask Frank anything, although the answers don't have to be in the form of a question. So what is on your mind? What do you want to talk about? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Now, we have the luxury of doing that this hour because this is a guest-free hour, which I like to do. A lot of times uh, on the the hours where we have a guest, I feel like I might be rushing my final thought or I might be rushing to get a caller off the air. And uh, the guest-free hours I really enjoy at times. I love talking to an interesting guest, a great guest. Because I get to kind of, uh, we're not in any, we don't have a gun to our head. We can kind of just chill out a little bit. Um, We're not under the gun, I should say. Anyway, we do have a lot of great guests for the rest of the program. Let me tell you what's coming up. We had a uh, timing, a timing incident of confusion uh, two days ago when we were supposed to talk with Russell Kenzior from the National Floor Safety Institute. He thought we wanted him at 2.30 in the afternoon, not 2.30 in the morning. Go figure. What a wacko. So uh, we have now straightened out the times, and he's going to join us next hour to talk about how many people are falling in this country. And I know what you're thinking. That is not a fun subject. That's not a, a, a subject that anybody cares about. I did a little research on this, and I was absolutely blown away by the sheer volume of money, of medical expenses, of insurance-related claims that are all a result of falls. And then I I thought to myself, I thought to myself, um, I thought to myself of all my friends and even some family members that have had issues, health issues, with falls. And not just the elderly either. Uh, Some very young people, they have all been in the position where they've fallen. I've fallen and I can't get up. And that fall has, in some cases, dramatically changed their life. I don't want to say irreparably changed their life because I think everything is, you know, what you make of it. And some people take challenges and they are able to rise to even greater potential than they ever dreamed of. But I know people whose lives have been totally upended because of falls. I don't want to mention anyone's name because I want to preserve their privacy, but it's a big deal. And the more research I did into this, the more prevalent I realized it is. So we're going to talk about that next hour. We got the AC report um, in the uh, third hour of the program. Going to be joined by the Atlantic County prosecutors, the, the the head Atlantic City prosecutor. That's basically not Atlantic City, Atlantic County. That's basically like the DA for South Jersey. But you're not elected. You're appointed. We're going to talk about that. And some national trends with respect to crime and things of that nature. And then I cannot wait to talk to Brian Kilmeade. I asked Brian Kilmeade a week ago if Trump was doing the right thing on going on CNN. And first he kind of dodged the question. And they said, well, I don't know if he should go on a network that's treating him like a subhuman. I think that's what he said. And I pressed him. I said, well, so just to be clear, do you think Trump's doing the right thing by going on CNN? Do you think CNN's doing the right thing? having him? And then begrudgingly... Kilmeade said yes. Now, I don't know what the ratings are going to be from last night's uh, CNN town hall meeting, but I have a feeling that there's a chance that you could have seen a lot of that former Tucker Carlson audience at 8 p.m. migrate over to that CNN town hall meeting. 
are we in a new era where CNN is the new conservative network? I doubt it, but I'm going to push Brian Kilmeade's buttons by asking him about that. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Eric is in Monroe. Eric, are you in Monroe, New Jersey, Monroe, New York, or Monroe, Connecticut, or it, wherever it else? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, I'm sorry to be, like, quick to the point. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's just, like, it's just, like, I'm kind of surrounded by, like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in a bad, it doesn't matter. It, it's just, like, I'm the only English speaking person and I can't communicate with anyone. Well, it, 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 it's quite interesting. I mean, just, uh, and, and, and you just, just go on that, man. And I'll listen. I'm hanging up. Peace, man. Thank you You're very off. much. That, that was a pretty odd response to a, a question that was kind of small talk. You know, was there a topic in there somewhere? Well, there so he said he's the only English speaking person in where he is, but he wouldn't tell me where he is. He's in the Monroe Protection Program. I wonder how many different places are named Monroe in the United States. I know in Liberia, the capital is named Monrovia for our former president, James Monroe. It's an interesting story about Liberia. I've told the story before. But the Liberia was founded by freed slaves. And the, the, there was a big question that if you freed all these slaves, what are you going to do with them? So there was this big movement to send them back to Africa. And James Monroe, the president at the time, thought that would be a good idea. So he shipped a whole bunch of formerly American slaves back to Africa, and they founded the country of Liberia, which means freedom. That's why if you look at the Liberian flag, it is a, uh, it's exactly the same as the American flag, except there's one star instead of 50. And in honor of James Monroe... They named their capital Monrovia. So maybe that's why um, that's why no one's speaking English where he is, because he's in Liberia. Uh, There are 27 places named Monroe in America. So we don't know where he is. He could be in Monroe, California, Monroe, Arkansas, Monroe, Georgia, Monroe, Kentucky. Who knows? Uh, New Jersey, New York, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Nebraska, no way to know. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to uh, Alex in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. Um, I I want to talk about two things. One is Pink Punk. I wanted to hear, you know, your... How, what your capabilities when it comes to ping pong is like? The, are you good at slamming, taking a slam at ping pong? Because I'm a big fan of that. I, game. I don't even know what that is. What is that? A slam by the ping pong? Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with that. When someone slams the ball, in in, in uh, yeah, like a dunk. Yeah, I'm not up on that. Uh, yeah. Matt Blaze, are you up on what he's talking about? You talking about ping pong? Oh, ping pong. I thought ping he was saying pink yeah, bonk. I thought he said ping pong. <laughs> Oh, he's yeah. talking fast. Ping pong. No, I'm on, honestly just a mediocre player, Alex. Um, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy the game, but I've played with other people. Uh, like my brother Alexander's a very good player. I've played with another, the young man that won our tournament this year, Daniel. My friend Kara, very good player. And uh, even Donna from how long, Huntington. How long, does it, how long does a play take? How many, is, is it like well, it 40 seconds, five seconds average? Uh, what, you're talking about an individual volley? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it varies. I would say sometimes it's um 
If you make a mistake on a serve, if your adversary makes a mistake on a serve, it could be 40 seconds. Sure, right. If it's a good volley, it could be, I don't know, a minute and a half, two minutes. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to talk about uh, how society changes, like when it comes to racism or different beliefs that the the new generations have, because I think we can't blame generations in the past for having certain beliefs uh, about certain races, religions, or different things. Because, like, let's say in, in uh, 20 years from now, the our children or grandchildren believe that we were inhumane to kill spiders or insects in the home. And they can come to a point where they believe we were Mm. murderers for killing them. Right. And so it's understandable, their line of thinking. And the question is, does that make us bad people now? No, I I talk about this all the time. And thanks for the call, uh, Alex, that I think it's totally unfair to judge people of different eras by the cultural mores and the societal norms of today. There are certain things that are always wrong, right? Murder, for instance, is always wrong. But I think it's totally unfair to to judge somebody like George Washington, for instance, who lived in the 1770s and 1780s by the standards of the 21st century. Same thing Thomas Jefferson, same thing Christopher Columbus. Think about how much... Life has changed and what's right and wrong has changed in the last 50 years, right? And think about that. Now then apply that to 100 years ago, 200 years ago. I think, uh, I think it does not make you a bad person if you're, you're playing by the rules as you know them, right? We're all, we're all a product of our environment. We're all a product of the era in which we've lived, right? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Brian is in Michigan. Hello, Brian. Hey, thanks. Thanks for taking a call. You're welcome. Hey, have you ever asked Carter Page or, uh, what is that, George, what was it, Papadopoulos to ever come on your radio show? Ye- I never hear from them anymore, and that bothers me because we all know now that Actually, the FBI and many other agencies, you know, they obviously joined in the tank with the media and the Democratic Party. We know it. Yeah, you know, I actually know uh, both of those guys a little bit. And uh, I will. uh, That's actually a good suggestion. Uh, I I know George a little bit better than I do Dr. Page. But um, I will actually make a note. Yeah, thanks. But their rights were violated. I mean, that FISA court has got to go. I I read the book. Thank you, Brent. I'm going to um, write myself a note uh, to reach out to both of those guys. You know what I try to do with this show, right? I mean, if you listen to so much of talk radio, it it, it almost becomes like um, a a convention of Trump groupies, right? And, you know, I voted for Trump. I don't run away from that. But I find that so incredibly boring of uh, a host talking about how great Trump is interviewing a guest about how great Trump is, and then they take a whole bunch of calls from uh, callers about how terrible Biden is and how great Trump is. To me, that's the most boring thing in the world, right? So I don't like to get too into the weeds with that kind of thing, but if I do do an interview with someone like a uh, George Papadopoulos, for instance, I'd like to do the kind of thing that I did with Paul Manafort, which is take a very different approach than what everyone else is doing. And, I, and I, look, Papadopoulos is an interesting guy, and there's some interesting things that you can do uh, with uh, with him that I don't think have been exploited. But you're right. 
I have not heard much from either of those guys, not just on criminal justice issues, but on a, a wide variety of other issues. So I'll reach out to them. All right. We are doing Open Line Thursday. And I'm asking you the question, what's on your mind? You want to talk about pro wrestling? You want to talk about, uh, you know, Atlantic City? You want to talk about uh, the mob? You want to talk about baseball? You want to talk about mental health? You want to talk about the political, uh, the, the criminal justice system? You want to talk about politics? Whatever the case may be, now's the time. 800-848-9222. Jackie in Maryland. Jackie, what's on your mind? I have a bone to pick with you. You said one time that you don't believe the election was rigged. Well, I witnessed it. I was a poll watcher in southwest Philadelphia with my girlfriend. And I've seen this bus come back three times with the same people. I called the League of Women Voters, and they never came out. All right. So uh, maybe you're right, Jackie. I don't know what to say. I mean, uh, if uh, I, I also I, the League of Women Voters doesn't necessarily have any enforcement capability. I mean, I would have um, I would have called, you know, some in. First of all, I would have reached out probably to the Trump campaign also, but I would have called some investigative entities that and report that sort of conduct. But thank you, Jackie. Look, my belief is Look, there's election fraud in uh, there's voter fraud in every election, and I've I've witnessed it as well. And uh, depending in certain places, it's more prevalent than others. What I said about the 2020 election is the degree of voter fraud that went on that we know about and or that's been proven. It was not enough to alter the outcome. We did an hour on this with Isaac Saul, and we had people call in. And uh, bring up every scenario in the world. And he, I think, appropriately addressed every single scenario that people brought up. So uh, did was there instances of voter fraud? Absolutely. Absolutely. Did it have an outcome on the election? I don't believe it did. And I, well, I, I will say I don't believe that there is proof that it did. But, uh, you know, if other people have different observations and different opinions. That's what makes America great, right? That's what makes talk radio great. Program dedicated to the free and open exchange of ideas and of opinions. All right, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. Bruno. He's your numero uno. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. 
I must say, this is a five-star bumper music selection by our own Matt Blaze. This is not only a great song, but it includes Star Trek references and clips, and it's topical. I mean, that is uh, a rare musical hat trick uh, for Matt Blaze. This uh, almost makes up for him forgetting to play the uh, back time bed in one of the hours yesterday. Well done, Matt Blaze. Absolutely. All right. Uh, If you're just tuning in, this is The Other Side of Midnight. We're doing something we haven't done in a while where we're giving you the opportunity to control everything that we discussed this hour. You remember The Outer Limits? When you'd tune in to the Outer Limits and they would say, we now control all that you see in here. We control the vertical. We control the horizontal. This is the opposite of the Outer Limits. This is the inner, um, I don't know, what's the opposite of a limit? Uh, uh, Well, I don't know. It's the inner limits. And I um, am giving you the opportunity to pick for the hour everything we discuss. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Bob is in Canarsie. Hello, Bob. How are you, boy? Yes. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I'm a little concerned with these guys from Canarsie that just got released with the sweetheart deal of uh, probably a dozen bodies dropped all over Brooklyn during the Lucchese's reign of terror. They were all out on the streets. I'm worried about myself. I can't go get a pizza, slice of pizza, pizzeria. I can't get an ice. So, I, I, you know, I don't know that should I'm... I, should I look up Curtis to be my bodyguard? <laughs> I hear Curtis has got nothing but time. I don't know that I'm up on the specific, uh, the specific case that you're, that you're talking about. There was a bunch of guys there in the air, all Lucchese guys. We know we got Columbos. There was a war there, but the Lucchese's were wiping people out. All those guys who were the trigger men, they were all out on the street. Yeah, is this the case uh, with uh, Baldy Mike Spinelli, who I know is still in? No, no, he got denied. Right. He got denied, but all his predecessors uh, out there on the streets. Yeah, and they might be looking for Curtis. Hey, uh, a lot of people are looking for Curtis. Curtis should stay out of taxis. You know, uh, this is an interesting case. I'm actually looking into it now. Uh, John and Nice had an interesting column in the New York Daily News about this. I'm gonna, I'll look into it. But uh, I think, um, you know, these days anyway, gangland style violence in the New York area, or at least mob style violence, is pretty rare. It's the a lot of the other ethnic groups and a lot of the gangs that tend to be the more violent among them. So uh, I don't think you... the biggest rat that eats Parmesan cheese. <laughs> I don't think you've got anything to worry about there, Bob. But uh, but keep us posted, you know. I'll give you Curtis's mobile phone number and uh, just text him, and he'll come <laughs> to wherever you are. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Nassau. Hello, Eddie. Yes, good morning, Frank. Look, uh, did the FISA judges ever make any statements Regarding the uh, Russian hoax situation? No, not to my knowledge. Oh, I see. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I stand to be corrected, but uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think there was anything uh, that they said about you know. FISA judges aren't big about explaining decisions that they make to begin with, and for decisions that they don't make, uh, 
I don't think they ever explain anything. So, uh, no, I, I don't know that there's been anything on that. 800-848-9222. Again, you don't have to ask a question. You can make a comment if you like. Uh, Tom is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, Frank. Yeah, right, With yeah. this <clears throat> disaster, I imagine they lifted the 42 uh, ruling is it lifted now? Uh, well, today's the day, right? So well, uh, let me let me say this. Look, yes, okay. With all the commotion going on, they should have at least renewed it. Uh, what 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 was so hard just to renew the standing to give us some breathing room until they can come up with a better idea what to do? Yeah, uh, well, I agree with you, Tom, on the better idea of what to do. Thank you. I am not for renewing Title 42. I don't like the surge of immigrants that we're going to deal with now. But the the thing is, Title 42 was implemented be, because of COVID, right? And if we're saying the world is back to normal and that the COVID pandemic is over, which the federal government has acknowledged, the WHO has acknowledged, everybody has acknowledged that the world is back to normal – and that COVID is not a public health emergency anymore, then I don't think we should keep in place restrictions that are only supposed to be in place for the COVID public health emergency. I am all for having broader border enforcement and better border enforcement and better and more immigration judges to process these people. But I'll tell you, this is the aspect that no one, almost no one other than me, is talking about if you look at these these uh, migrants, especially the asylum seekers, where are they coming from? Uh, so many of them are coming from places like Venezuela. So many of them are coming from places like Cuba, and coming from places where we have sanctions in place. And these sanctions have done nothing to change the government in Cuba. They have done nothing to change the government in Venezuela. They only have hurt the people in these countries. And these people are suffering from all sorts of poverty. And we've created, through American sanctions, a new class of refugees. So until we do away with these Venezuela sanctions, with these Cuba sanctions, and while we're at it, I would say let's do away with with a lot of these Russia sanctions as well. And until we do away with our sanctions policy, which is just absurd, and I was glad to hear Dr. Christopher Mott mention this 24 hours ago, this is going to continue. So I think we need a multifold approach. Do we need troops at the border? Yes. We also need more immigration judges, 100%. I would love to see, and it's not an immediate solution, but a long-term solution, I would love to see some sort of border wall as well. Additionally, we need to do away with the sanctions because until you get to the root, we need to reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy. Until you do away with the, until you address the root cause of the problem, which is the sanctions, you're going to just keep dealing with this problem day in and day out. So I think it's a multifold approach. That's not a popular uh, approach to take to this, but believe it or not, it's the correct one. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. in New Jersey, what's on your mind? Yeah, uh, there's something I wanted to get off my chest. I was listening to John Cassimedi 
when he interviewed RFK and then he interviewed Chris Christie. And Chris Christie, Michael Bolton, uh, Bill Barr, they all go on there and say, oh, Trump can't win. Well, he's up by six points in a poll. You know, I don't understand why they keep going against their own party. Well, you know, why don't they all just get behind Trump and take it to the finish line? Well, look, Michael what Bolton, as, as accomplished as a singer and songwriter that he is, uh, I, I don't John know. Bolton. Oh, John Bolton. OK, yeah. well, I, I look, uh, uh, who was the other person you mentioned? John Bolton and the other one, Chris Christie, Bill Barr. Oh, Bill Chris Barr. Well, especially. Look, He's always out there ripping well, on look, Trump. I'm going to bring up the Christie situation with uh, Brian Kilmeade in the last hour of the program, Ray. But. With Chris Christie, it's very simple. Chris Christie is trying to run for president himself. So no one wants Chris Christie to run for president except Chris Christie. Nobody. I've yet to meet another American. The closest thing I've found to a Chris Christie supporter is Brian Kilmeade. And that's why I'm going to ask him about this. But I have – look, I have friends that are ultra left-wing, ultra right-wing, and I have a lot of friends that are somewhere in between. I have a lot of friends that don't care about politics. The one thing that every single person that I know has in common, not one of them wants Chris Christie to run for president. Not one. And yet Chris Christie is working so hard to find a rationale for his candidacy. And so far, the only rationale he's been able to offer is that Trump can't win. Now, as as soon as the political winds shift Chris Christie's going to do what he always does. He's going to stick his finger in the wind, see which direction it's blowing, and he's going to jump on that bandwagon. If Christie does not end up running for president, I guarantee you, and Trump maintains the lead that he has now in the primaries, I guarantee you Christie is going to not only endorse Trump, but he's going to become the most enthusiastic Trump supporter there is. In the case of John Bolton, that's a different ballgame. Bolton does not agree with Trump ideologically. He doesn't agree with... What about with, Bill Barr? Well, yeah, I'm going to get to Bill Barr. Um, okay. th- I'm going to put you on hold, Ray, uh, just for sake of... Int- uh, so that you can hear what I say, and then if you want to add anything, you can. Bolton um, does not agree with Trump ideologically. Doesn't agree with him on foreign policy. Doesn't agree with him on um, on Russia. Doesn't agree with him on anything, really. And that's why I have an issue with Trump, because John Bolton should never have been appointed national security advisor in the Trump administration. John Bolton is the antithesis of Trumpism. As far as I'm concerned, John Bolton should not have even been allowed to visit the White House in a Trump administration. And that, to me, is a real demerit against President Trump. He said he would appoint only the best people. He appointed some of the worst people we've ever had. Uh, John Bolton being one, uh, Christopher Wray being one, Bill Barr, I'm not as tough on Bill Barr, but um, if you look up and down the line, this administration was filled with people who easily could have served in a Jeb Bush or a Hillary Clinton administration. Bill Barr uh, is an interesting character, right? I I haven't heard Bill Barr say what you just said, Ray, which is that Trump can't win. I have heard him criticize a lot of the things that Trump did while in office, and I have heard him decry a lot of the things that Trump has said on the 2020 election. As far as the 2020 election goes, I think you have something of an obligation to state your opinion on that because 
he was the head of the Justice Department, and he was tasked with investigating these allegations of corruption. And he had been considered a pretty law and order guy and a pretty stalwart Trump supporter. A lot of the people uh, took Mueller's letter to him. They said Barr misinterpreted it publicly to uh, a way to to make it a way that was more advantageous to Trump. I um. I don't have an issue with what Bill Barr has said about the 2020 election. What I do have an issue with is all these guys and up and down the Trump administration, including Bolton and Barr, is the first thing they do get when they get out of office is they run to make a tell all book deal where they try to sell uh, their darkest, dirtiest secrets of everything that happened in private conversations even though the only reason they have any value to a book publisher or to go on TV or anybody knows who they are, quite frankly, is because Trump appointed them. So to me, it strikes me as a a complete act of disloyalty to write these tell-all books. And I'll include, um, you know, a a lot of other people in that Trump administration as well, writing these tell-all books where you're trashing the only person that made you relevant. So I don't love what Barr did on the tell-all book front, but uh, I don't have an issue with what he said about 2020. I have not heard him say that um, that Trump can't win, but I don't uh, pay that close attention to the things that, that Barr says these days, honestly, just because not anything against Barr. It's just I got a lot on my mind. I got a lot on my plate here. But um, that's my two cents. It would be almost like all these tell-all books, while their boss is actively running for president again. The only reason I have a job, right, is mostly because of John Katzmatidis, the owner of this radio network. Now, if John decides that he doesn't like me anymore and fires me, and then I go out and I'm trying to get another radio job, do you think the first thing I would do is trash John Katzmatidis? One, I wouldn't do that because John and I are friends and I have nothing to trash him about. But to me, the guys that did with that with Trump or anybody. I would say this of if people did it to Obama or Bill Clinton or even George W. Bush, who's one of my least favorite presidents. Th- those guys are, to me, just terrible. It's just a tremendous act of disloyalty. All right, 800-848-9222. Uh, we'll continue with your calls in just a moment. I'd love to get some non-political questions, or not even questions, but non-political comments as well. Because, again, you get you get 20 hours a day of political talk. Um, and to me, it's a little boring, right? I could go with some other subjects as well. 800-848-9222, but it's not up to me. It's up to you. Whatever you're up for, we will discuss. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also, 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. You better think, think, 
I love this song. I, I guarantee you, I am the only person that thinks of Phil Donahue when I hear this song. You know what? Because 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, it was uh, 2002, July of 2002, around there. Phil Donahue returned, who I think is one of the greatest talents in the history of television, honestly. Uh, and I don't know what he's up to. He is somebody we have heard um, nothing from for the last maybe six, seven years. I don't know what he's doing. I've been trying to get in touch with him. Not that I know Phil Donahue. I wouldn't know how to get in touch with him. But uh, he returned to television after seven years of retirement to host a show called Donahue on MSNBC. And this was the music that they played in all of his promos. This is uh, Aretha Franklin. And if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, join our Facebook group. You can just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters, or you can go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. That's uh, Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. But um, then, of course, Donahue was against the war in Iraq and MSNBC... The bastion of free thinking because Donahue was opposed to the war in Iraq, even though that was one of the highest rated shows they had in primetime, they fired him. And um, if you think that the military industrial complex is not a real thing, who owned MSNBC at the time? General Electric, a major defense contractor. And they were not going to allow... Phil Donahue, to be on in prime time preaching an anti-war message when there was money to be made in that war in Iraq. And GE certainly did very well. 800-848-9222, Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hi, Frank. Good evening. How are you tonight? Hanging in there. Thanks. That's good. Well, I had a question. Uh, This is far-fetched, but... Would you ever dress in drag, or if William Shatner was going to dress in drag, would you dress in drag or do a sure? Why not? Work why not? Drag day? Why not? Why not? Yeah. What's the? Uh, I, you know, I'm trying to think of the circumstance, but I will do just about anything for the sake of a good show. You know, um, Rudy Giuliani dressed in drag at least twice: once at the Inner Circle, and I think maybe once on Saturday Night Live, maybe twice at the Inner Circle, and he looked great in drag. Um, and um, absolutely, I don't. You know, bosom buddies with Tom Hanks was a great show. I don't think you know my friend Vinny's daughter. And thanks for the call, uh, Paul. My friend Vinny's daughter has these Snapchat filters where you can see what someone would look like as an old person or a little boy or a woman. And she has shown me what I would look like as a woman. And I'm, I hate to say this, but I'm actually a pretty ugly woman. I, I think the a lot of people would say I'm not that handsome as a man either. But as a woman, forget about it. Uh, I am stopping traffic, not in a good way. So uh, I would dress in drag if the right circumstance was uh, was involved here. Yeah, I don't think it's that big of a deal. People have done it since Shakespeare's time. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Rich is in Baltimore. Hello, Rich. How you doing, buddy? Great. Uh, I want to talk about Fox News. Uh, what is your uh, all this thing I'm hearing about Tucker Carlson? How great he is! I watch Fox News for one thing, Bill O'Reilly. Now I think Bill O'Reilly made Fox News. Uh, I don't know what your opinion is. Mine is he made Fox News. Uh, so what do you think about Bill O'Reilly? Ah, oh, look, I think you can't argue with success, right? And um, Bill O'Reilly was the number one 
primetime show in cable news for 17 years. And you show me someone else that can lay claim to that. There's no one else. Also a New York Times bestselling author. The guy is a top-tier talent. Uh, thank you, Rich. It, did he make Fox News? Maybe. Maybe. I think the person who ultimately gets the credit for making Fox News, in my book, regardless of what you might think of him as a person, is Roger Rails. Roger Rails, I think, actually gets credit for making The Mike Douglas Show, for making CNBC, for making uh, the Richard Nixon 1968 uh, presidential comeback, and for making Fox News. Roger Rails, for all his personal failings, was a brilliant, brilliant man. And I think even people that have parted company with Roger Rails over the years, like Megyn Kelly, I think even they would uh, acknowledge that. Uh, so would Fox News have become what it did without O'Reilly? I don't know. I don't know. But I don't think uh, you can take anything away from O'Reilly in terms of his rating success or his uh, or his talent. 800-848-9222. Jimmy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jimmy. Hello. You know, there are different ways to rig an election. You don't only rig an election through the ballots. You rig the election through the information. So if the radical left controls the schools or has heavy influence in the schools and the media, they shape how you think. They shape you by shaping the information you get. That changes or guides how you vote. This is a very serious situation. Also, another point, no matter how many times you count counterfeit money, it's still counterfeit money. So if the ballots were illegal, it doesn't matter how many times you count and recount. That's not the thing about recounting. It's checking the authenticity or the legitimacy of the money or the ballot. We are in big trouble, man. We are in absolutely big trouble. This country has never been in this danger before. Now, I have been saying that for 35 years on the radio. But well, now eventually you'll be right. See it. Yeah, thank you, Jimmy. You know, uh, again, I... I don't dispute with what you're saying about information influencing an election, and I get that. But that's a very different thing than saying an election is stolen um, or that there are, are fake votes counted or, as Trump was saying last night, uh, that there were illegal votes um, you know, counted. That is just not true. I mean, you, your point about information influencing an election, yes, you could certainly say you could certainly say that. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Brandon is in New Jersey. Hello, Brandon. Hey, Frank. Your uh, your crew is going to hate me for this, but I was brainstorming a segment for your show. Maybe uh, something like Six Degrees of Shatner, where people call in with a you know popular figure, or movie, or something, and you got to try to connect it back to Shatner. Yeah. Why will they hate it? I think that's a great idea. Well, no, I, I'm saying anybody that uh, doesn't like hearing you talk about Shatner might might be mad at me for that, but. Uh, well, uh, give me an example. Like, give me someone, and we'll see if we can do it. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, Marlon Brando. Uh, okay, Marlon Brando. I think. Um, okay, so m- let me let me think through this here. Um, there. W- w- let's see here, um, because there's got to be a short path. Got to get to six degrees. Brando was in. I want to get. Uh, I'm, I'm going to th- I, I see. I got to get better at uh, doing it quickly. But Brando was in um, Apocalypse Now with Martin Sheen and Martin Sheen was in um, Wall Street with Charlie Sheen. 
Charlie Sheen was in National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1 with William Shatner. Nice, nice. Thank you very much. That's not bad, okay? I, I get it. It took me a second. That's not bad. 800-848-9222. I like that idea. Uh, Jack is in Maryland. Hello, Jack. Yeah, how you doing, Frank? And thanks for having an open mic tonight. Sure, sure, sure. I want to mention something about Skinwalker Ranch to you, but before I do... I just heard today that there was a man named Mr. Silverstein, or I'm not exactly sure of the name, but he would eat breakfast on one of the tower restaurants, the World Trade Center, uh, on the 91st floor every day, every morning. Well, he didn't show up on May the 21st, 2011. He supposedly had an emergency doctor's appointment. And this same man, just a week before, took an insurance policy out for $4.5 billion on the two towers. Okay, and well, course, hang, you hang, know on, what hang on, Jack, hang on. One, um, but if you're talking about May 21st, 2011, the Twin Towers had already been blown up for 10 oh, years. No, no, I'm sorry. I meant 2001, um, uh, 9-11, yeah, on 9-11. And he collected $4.5 billion. So when I heard that, I went, whoa, is that sure goes with all the conspiracy theorists if they found that out. But I just heard that today on the news, and I thought that, wow. So anyway, you might want to look into that later. Uh, but about Skinwalker Ranch, um, there's a lot of strange things going on, and they're all documented. I've, I've been watching the series, and it, to me it's amazing. And it, to me it should be the number one rated show of all because of the strange things that's going on. But every time they start digging or they start looking in the mesa because they did a ground survey and they saw this big, huge, saucer-shaped object, which is huge, under the mesa, the, the little hill. So now they're trying to go in it, and every time they do, the computer shut down. A uh, 1.6 megahertz comes out and it, it ruins the computers. So it's actually like it's it, it just amazing. So now that they're going in, they're getting close to finding out what it is, and I don't think that's going to be very good. I just wanted to let yeah. you know about that. Well, that I, I, I haven't seen that show yet. I'm familiar with Skinwalker oh, Ranch. You haven't seen no, it. Oh, and, my. Yeah, and if people aren't familiar with it, Skinwalker Ranch is um, in Utah, right? Utah? Yes. Utah. And uh, basically, it's a 500-acre ranch that is the site of all sorts of of paranormal activity and UFO-related activity. Is that show on the History Channel? Yes, it is. Yeah, I'm going to check it out because I like to watch um, Unexplained with William Shatner on there, and I like to watch Ancient Aliens on there. But the yeah. next time I'm up early uh, before Rachel's awake, I'm going to check that out, this uh, Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. some of the earlier episodes and, and try to get a uh, condensed on what's going on there. I think you'll be amazed, right? Okay. That's a great idea. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate that. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. George is in Manhattan. Hello, George. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. Listen, yes, Frank, yes. I have Listen. a couple of suggestions. You don't mind constructive criticism? Lay it on me, George. Uh, you're, right. You've offered con- criticism that's not so a constructive them, in the past. So go ahead. All right. One is that the 15 seconds should be a bit longer, at least, uh, you know, callers should have uh, more time, you know, uh, because quite often I notice uh, a caller uh, does not get to the logical point intended and is cut off midstream around 12 seconds. Another thing is, for example, we should have once a week a segment whereby callers will call and 
explicate whatever they like, etc., without interruption for more than 15 seconds, say uh, maybe 30 seconds or something like that. How about twice per show the 15 seconds, you know? And I think uh, that's pretty popular. Uh, furthermore, regarding switching of topics, uh, uh, you know, quite often it does happen uh, during the Bob Grant days, of course. He would never switch topics and uh, cut off people earlier. He might have brought up a topic, and then uh, they were online waiting to get on the air, and then he wouldn't cut them off. It, even uh, from the beginning, three hours he had generally, you know, his show would last. He'd let callers call and uh, speak uh, regarding uh, the initial topic that he had uh, brought up. Now, as far as you're concerned, I notice you're the, not the only host it happens you know, to. It happens vis-a-vis uh, -vis other hosts quite often. They bring up a topic, a caller's call, uh, 15 minutes roughly, the topic is gone, and you've got about 10 uh, people more or less you know, uh, waiting to uh, discuss the topic, and then the topic is switched to another topic and it goes on, and uh, the first topic is forgotten altogether, uh, uh, etc. And finally, uh, regarding the uh, uh, the uh, ten questions, you know, in a minute, uh, the prize. Uh, I thought you had a rule whereby, or Kat Matidis had made the uh, recommendation. I think uh, you had mentioned it uh, that a person who gets eight correct answers consecutively out of the 10 uh he or she wins a hundred bucks consolation prize um well and i'm very grateful to you for uh being so patient thank you george thank you you said a lot there i'm not going to tackle everything you said i i am bothered by that thousand dollar minute uh prize criteria especially that guy that got nine right uh, a couple of weeks ago not getting a cash prize or eight, right? I agree with that. And John, John Katsimatidis is the one that said we should change it. And then the um, other people that manage the station on a day-to-day -day basis, they said, no, we're not doing that anymore. So, look, I just work here. I just work here, and it's above my pay grade. But if you want to see those prizes restored to the, uh, the you know, uh, the, the, the place they were formerly where there are cash prizes for – uh, eight right or nine right, you got to write to the, the network, right? And uh, I, it's out of my hands. I have tried. Uh, these guys have seen me in our po Friday post-show meetings. I have brought this up, and my arguments have fallen on deaf ears. So uh, I do agree with you on that. I, uh, As far as 15 seconds of fame goes, I feel like we do it just enough. Just enough. I feel like if we did it twice per show, that would probably be a little a little overkill. All right. 800-848-9222, Gene is down at the shore. Hello, Gene. Franco, checking in from the shore. How you been? Great, thank you. You know, I, I had three political topics I was trying to pick between, and you said, let's change it up, so I want to talk about baseball. Well, I mean, if you're more interested in the political topics, talk about whatever you want. you got a minute. It's all yours. No, Frank, too, so much of that, I agree with you. Listen, what is going on with the injuries with the pitchers that can't go more than five or six innings, I mean, they've got they've got trainers, they've got gyms, supplements, they've got analytics. I mean, go back and look at some of the records of the pitchers that used to go nine innings, ten innings, eleven. Innings. Gibson, 
Drysdale. I mean, what is going on? An oblique strain? <laughs> I mean, a, a, a toe, uh, a, an ingrown toenail or a bad toe. I mean, I know these things are painful and, and, and irritating, but it, the, the old school guys like me who used to tape it up and get back out there, Mickey Mantle played his whole career. With a debilitating disease. Yeah, and Tell and, what's going and on, in the Frank. days, uh, thank you, Gene, and in the days with no DH, I think what you're seeing is a couple of things here. One, the days of Steve Carlton pitching 300 innings a season, those days are never coming back. I think there's a desire on the part of the teams not to do anything that's going to hurt the player. And more important, in some cases, the players' union doesn't want to take any chance with any of these players. I don't know. We'll see. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is one of the subjects that I was originally going to start the show with before changing course. Very interesting. Um, In an interview with Fox News on Tuesday, Governor Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, said he would not be endorsing cash payments as reparations. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole reparations debate, the cases for it, the, the reasons for it or against it. I happen to be, for reasons I've stated previously, and I won't bore you by repeating them all, I happen to be against reparations. I don't think that would be um, – I don't think it would be wise. I don't think it would be fiscally prudent. I don't think it would be fair uh, to people that didn't own slaves or that were not alive. I also don't think it would be fair to flare. But uh, Gavin Newsom – This is kind of a surprise. He said he would not be endorsing these cash payments as reparations. And this has stunned many supporters. And this has stopped the movement for cash reparations in California dead in its tracks. You see, there was a task force that was first put together three years ago following Governor Newsom signing legislation into law. So he's the one that signed into law the bill creating the task force. They've considered and recommended reparations, monetary or otherwise, for black people living in California, for discriminatory practices and slavery of the past. Despite that, California was never a slave state. Now think about that, okay? California, never a slave state. They're giving reparations to black people. I mean, to me, it's just... Well, they're trying to. And initially, this encompassed all people of African descent. The group of those qualified to receive reparations was significantly narrowed a year ago when the task force voted to limit the possible reparations to those who are an African-American descendant of an enslaved person or free black person living in the U.S., prior to the end of the 19th century. So if you were a slave in Africa, and then you, you or your grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-great-grandparents were slaves in Africa, and then you came here after slavery was abolished, tough, you're out of luck. In June of 2022, 
the task force released its first report giving a recommendation of reparations in the form of home buying assistance, free college tuition, and business grants. However, one of the many criticisms against the report, including for me, if you remember at the time, was that no estimated monetary figure was attached. We had no idea how much it would cost. So in early December, they did pin a number on this, an estimate of $569 billion was provided by the state, leading to disbelief and the threat of lawsuits if that number held. Later that month, compensation uh, and eligibility requirements were discussed. However, since the beginning of the year, many parts of the task force's actions have been under scrutiny. The question of compensation has been particularly polarizing because people are opposed to giving away $800 billion in compensation. The task force members came out to say uh, to stop focusing on the monetary aspect of it. A more recent figure of $1.2 million given to each black resident has also been scrutinized. Despite heavy criticism over any cash payments still persisting, the task force voted to approve these cash payments over the weekend. So everybody follow me on what happens here? Governor Gavin Newsom signed a law in California creating a reparations task force. The reparations task force said, well, maybe we'll do this. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do this and that. How much is that going to cost? I have no idea. Oh, come back to us when you know. We'll come back. Uh, We need about $800 billion. And we're going to give every black person that's a descendant of someone that was here prior to 1865, we're going to give them eh, about $1.2 million each. Whoa, hold the phone. We don't like that at all, said the public. And the task force said, well, we don't necessarily care if you like it. And they voted over the weekend to approve this. So according to the task force recommendation, direct cash payments for restitution would be divided between more broader areas of compensation for large groups of eligible people and more focused compensation based on individual harms of the past. This would include an estimated payment of uh, $13,619 per each year of state residency for health care disparities. $3,300 per each year lived in the state between 1933 and 1977 for housing discrimination. And $2,300 per each year lived in California between 1971 and 2020 for mass incarceration and over-policing. So I want you to understand what's going on here. This task force was prepared to pay people not just for the wrongs of slavery in the 19th century, but the wrongs of housing discrimination in the 20th century and the wrongs of over-policing in the 21st century. I'd be curious if a lot of the people witnessing the crime spree in places like San Francisco think they're over-policed. My brother-in-law is a uh, police officer in Los Angeles Something tells me that a lot of the people that he's protecting on a daily basis, they don't feel over-policed. Outside, we're going to get into crime issue, the crime issue more next hour. Outside of these direct monetary payments, there were other more social changes recommended, including removing racial bias and discriminatory practices in standardized testing. Will you give me a break? What? Standard, I, got, I, just, I just can't. I can't even read this task force recommendation. 
So anyway, Governor Gavin Newsom has taken a lot of heat on this because he found himself in between approving a policy that would financially harm the state to the tune of, you know, billion dollars or so or uh, $800 billion to be precise. And or going back on his initial approval of this task force several years ago. So yesterday, Governor Newsom, what day is today? No, today's kind of Thursday, depending on where you are in the world. Tuesday, Newsom said he would approve many parts of the reparations recommendations, but would not support any cash payments. Instead, he gave a vague approval of the task force's work for coming up with the recommendations. Well, anybody can come up with recommendations that you don't follow. That's not an accomplishment. The real accomplishment for Gavin Newsom is being able to be married to Kimberly Guilfoyle when she was, to use the Don Lemon phrase, very much in her prime. That's an accomplishment. Uh, Newsom is saying no to direct cash payments. While supporters of reparations have not yet responded to the governor as of Tuesday evening, opponents embrace the news as it would either mean an outright veto or that the final report of the task force or the subsequent bill for reparations would need to be significantly altered. So this is what uh, this is the statement that governor well, I don't want to read the whole thing. Um, but he said, uh, all right, here. So this is what he said. Dealing with that legacy of slavery is about much more than cash payments. Many of the recommendations put forward by the task force are critical action items we've already been hard at work addressing, breaking down barriers to vote, bolstering resources to address hate, enacting sweeping law enforcement and justice reforms to build trust and safety, strengthening economic mobility, all while investing billions to root out disparities and improve equity in housing, education, health care, and well beyond. This work must continue. Following the task force's submission of its final report this summer, I look forward to a continued partnership with the legislature to advance systemic changes that ensure an inclusive and equitable future for all Californians. He also said, I'll just read this part, the reparations task force's independent findings and recommendations are a milestone in our bipartisan effort to advance justice and promote healing. This has been an important process, and we should continue to work as a nation to reconcile our original sin of slavery and understand how that history has shaped our country. So did not indicate any support for cash payments. And I give him credit for this. Now, I think, like everything Gavin Newsom does, this is blatantly political. I think Gavin Newsom views himself as a presidential candidate either in 2024 or in 2028. And I think he realizes that if he's going to get elected and get win over purple states like Wisconsin, Virginia, uh, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, Nevada, I think if he wants to be competitive in states that aren't necessarily as blue as California is, he recognizes that he needs to take some more moderate stances. Now, I don't care. I'm glad he's doing it. Uh, Because this would have been such a dangerous precedent for the whole country to start uh, paying reparations to people that never own from people that never owned slaves to people who were never slaves. So I'm glad he's doing it, uh, although I think it's certainly blatantly political. The other issue I was going to talk about is these um, what's happening with the airlines. But I'll save that for later because uh, Russell Kenzie or who we had some confusion with earlier in the week 
in terms of what time he was going to be on. He is going to join us in about 15 minutes. And we spoke to him. Kenneth Wright's not going to be another Richard Hoagland situation, and he wasn't mean like Richard Hoagland was or anything? Okay, all right, so we forgive him. We give him a, we give him a pass for old time's sake. What do you think about this announcement from Gavin Newsom that he is not on board with these cash payments? 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Here is State Senator Steve Bradford. He is a member of the Reparations Task Force on um, the NBC affiliate, uh, KGET, talking about what Newsom has said on reparations, which is the statement that I just read to you. As far as the governor's statement, I I think he's setting a realistic expectation that there probably won't be check payments in the tune of or the amount that we've all heard bannered around for the last two years uh, since we started this process. Again, I've tried to temper people's expectations that it might not be a check. And at many of the hearings, people say, where's my check? I mean, again, if you understand the original commitment, it was 40 acres and a mule. So it was never about money. 800-848-9222. Dr. Amos Brown, civil rights leader on KGET in California, talking about that same statement from Governor Gavin Newsom. No good reason for them to come up with an excuse. Oh, we have a deficit. We're not asking for any handout. We're looking at asking for a hand up and correcting that evil that was done. So Amos Brown... Says there's no good reason. 800-848-9222. State of California is running a deficit already, and yet Dr. Amos Brown still wants to go forward with between somewhere, depending on which number you look at, somewhere between $500 billion and $800 billion of payments. Paid for by people that never owned slaves to people who were never slaves. 800-848-9222. Thoughts, questions, comments. Uh, Let me say hello to Neil. On Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. I was thinking about reparations, and that was the reason I was calling. You know, my son has to take out a mortgage, and now he has to pay a, a VIG thanks to Biden uh, because he has a great credit rating and he works 15 hours a day and he's been fiscally responsible. And then when you think about it, it's congested pricing. We, as a taxpayer, we have to pay for the people that they refuse to collect fares from. We're riding for free. Crime is at an all-time high. Nobody can. And now the mayor wants to close up streets in the city to put migrants. So that it's the congestion again. If you're on the car, you're screwed. If you go over a toll, you're screwed. Go to the supermarket, you're screwed. Every which way. The property taxes out of this world. A piece of paper in front of your house. They're giving you a $100 ticket. You know, it's time for the taxpayer maybe to get a little reparations. We're not respected. All we are is a wallet, and it's about time that maybe we got a little something for ourselves because how much longer can we be paying and how much longer can we be disrespected and just looked at as a source of income while everybody else uh, is, is paying bupkis? Well, Neil, thank you. Look, I've spoken about that new mortgage uh, calculus before about people with higher credit ratings needing get, actually having to pay more for their mortgage, which I think is insane. As far as your broader point, you said quite a bit there. I'm not going to respond to each thing. But as far as your broader point in terms of middle class taxpayers being squeezed, I agree with it. I And it's not just because I am a middle class taxpayer. It seems like this tax code is 
great for you if you are not earning any money. It seems like the current tax code is great for you if you're super wealthy. It seems like this current tax code is great for you if you're a corporation like Amazon not paying any taxes. If you are a regular Joe Schmo or Jane Schmo working a regular job, it's very difficult for the tax code to – it's very difficult to get a break. And the tax code doesn't make it any easier. You know, if you make uh, $100,000 a year, you're paying 6.2% in Social Security taxes. Now, that only goes up to, I don't know what the number is this year, I think about 125000 could be 130000 because I know they index it for inflation. So that means every dollar that someone who's earning $5 million a year between 125000 and $5 million a year, they're paying just on their first $160,000. Now, how is that fair? You want to talk about the mortgage interest tax deduction. You know, for years I was a renter. If I wasn't married to my wife now, I would still be a renter. And yet my taxes, I didn't get to deduct my rent. And my taxes were going to fund the mortgage interest tax deduction. How is that fair? We have a tax code where the middle class are subsidizing the poor and the super wealthy and corporations. And it's you know why? It's because the middle class don't have anybody to be a lobbyist for them. The super wealthy and corporations that pay zero taxes, like Amazon, they have lobbyists that they can write loopholes into the tax code. We don't have that. So I, I agree with your broader point about uh, middle class tax equity. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to uh, David in the Bronx. Uh, David, set us straight on reparations here. All right. Yeah. Good morning, Frank. First of all, to Neil in Staten Island, crime is not at an all-time high. And if he doesn't believe me, he can check out the statistics going back to the 1970s and early 90s. But to the reparations issue, and this may surprise some of your listeners, I don't approve of reparations. I think they're a bad idea, and I think they're divisive. But I take issue with your assertion that it's solely about slavery, because then you're denigrating the experience of African Americans who are alive, like myself, who've experienced police harassment and housing discrimination and job discrimination and being followed around supermarkets and all the other kinds of discrimination that still happen to this day, well, Frank. Me, me, I David, David, hang on, hang on, David, 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 David. First of all, let me, no, okay. yeah, yeah, go okay. ahead. Uh, and then I'm going to let you say whatever you want. But let's talk about the, the incidents that you just referenced, right? Let's say somebody is a victim of police brutality or police abuse or something along those lines. I don't think there's anything wrong with you, David, or anybody that's a victim of uh, police brutality or anything, um, suing and getting a cash payment from the police department that that wronged you. Uh, what I have an issue with and uh, is sort of the same reason that I think you might be opposed to reparations for slavery. What I have an issue with is people that had nothing to do with police brutality benefiting from or being harmed 
by those payments. If you're screwed up by somebody, whether it's a cop or somebody else, you should get paid. Or and, and that cop that did that to you should go to jail. I don't see why I, who had nothing, was not a victim of police brutality, if I happen to be black, I don't see why I should get to enjoy the benefit of your suffering. All right. Let me address that, Frank. The fact of the matter is, if the situations I've been involved in, if I filed a lawsuit and won, the money would be paid by the city, which would be paid by taxpayers. So you are paying for this anyway when it does happen. And I'll just say this as a personal aside. The first time I was pulled over by a cop was when I was 13 years old on my bicycle because we lived in a white neighborhood, and apparently they didn't think I belonged there. And when they pulled me over, they said, well, what are you doing? Why aren't you in school? You know what I said to them? I said, it's Saturday. They had their pre-planned nonsense that they always hit black people with because when my mom actually called, they sent them to our house. Oh, well, there's been someone involved in robbing the neighborhood, and they go and they use a bicycle to take the stolen goods away. Do you know how many times I've heard that story from cops when I get pulled over? Someone fitting my description was seen doing something. I'm sick of it, Frank. You haven't had to go through this, and you don't understand what we go through. And this has been my issue with you for a long time, and we, we had this discussion right, last right. week. Right, you say this frequently. Right. You, you say this frequently. Yeah, right. because it's true. Okay. Because you can't put yourself in my shoes. I, I, that's you true. haven't been through this your entire life. Okay, my perspective is painted by my experiences, Frank, and a lot of them have to do with racism. But David, everybody's perspective is painted through what they've been through, right? And you're right. I I can't speak to what you've been through, and uh, I think that uh, that instance or all the instances you reference, it's terrible that any person, let alone a police officer, should ever do that. But I think that's where you know, as as a voter. You vote for people that will make changes to a police department to make sure it's not abusive. And if you're the victim of police abuse, you file a lawsuit and you get paid. Okay, Frank, let me just ask you one final question, and then I'll let you go to go about your married business. Do you. you at least acknowledge that there is still ongoing racism happening in this country against African Americans? Do you believe that it still happens? I think there's racism. Yes. The short answer is yes. And thank you for the call, David. I think there's racism in many different sectors of society, right? If you look at the um, the surge in bias crimes that took place during the Trump administration, a lot of the anti-Asian hate crimes, a lot of the anti-Semitic violent crimes, who was the large what ethnic group was perpetuating the largest number of those crimes uh, black people now does it mean every black person is anti-semitic or anti-asian of course not just like i think it's totally unfair if you get stopped by a white cop and he doesn't do the right thing by you it's totally unfair of you to hold every white person responsible for that Every person is capable of hate. Every group is capable of having elements within it that are biased. Every person is capable of racism. So to act like only black people have a monopoly on on, um, being discriminated against, I think is quite naive. Everybody's got a story. Every immigrant, every child of an immigrant, every uh, grandchild of an immigrant— 
has a story of them being discriminated against by someone. So we have two choices in society and in life, as far as I'm concerned. We can either uh, accept the fact that there are bad people out there and racist people and just hateful people and violent people, and we could use that as an excuse to vote ourselves more money, which is what the movement behind this reparations task force in California was, or we could say, I'm going to work to make this world a better place. I am going to not teach those messages of hate to my friends and children, and I am not going to be part of that cycle of racism. So I know what I'd pick. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Russell Kenzie, you're joining us in a moment. But Greg is in Arizona. Greg, what, what station are you listening to us on out there? Uh, I, uh, that's funny you should ask. It's one of my favorites. It's, uh, I'm on the Internet. It's uh, Talk Right. It, it, uh, it, it, and you, I know you're not right, but... Um, but I'm not it, wrong it, either. No, yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I'm calling. I love talking to right people. Um, hey, reparations, it, it's a divisive uh, tactic for this country, and this country has to become unified because there's so many terrorist groups, other countries that, that are our enemies... And we can't be enemies to each other. So think about this. Not only am I recommending the right re- reparations for even the blacks, but how about every impoverished or poor, disadvantaged person as a whole in the form of the great society? Eight trillion dollars since 1964 to reparations for everyone who, who's down and out, whether it was from slavery or uh, your parents getting pregnant when they were in high school, and now you're, you're stuck in Section 8 housing. Well, Greg, thank you. Right. I, I we have a, we have welfare for people that need it. Right. And I don't have an issue with that. I think if you're poor, you should be able to get Medicaid. I think you should be able to get Social Security disability insurance. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Uh, we are not an unforgiving society. But the issue that I take with reparations as a per, as opposed to economic equality is that reparations punishes people that didn't do anything wrong and rewards people that weren't direct victims. That's my issue. It's an issue of fairness to Flair and others. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, two quick points, uh, Frank. One is uh, John Kerry, who could have been president, right, said he wanted to give $7 trillion to China for reparations for global warming and pollution. Uh, precipitated by the U.S. Now, this is not John Kerry's money, so there's a mentality that even if the money exists, once these public officials get their hands on it, it's up to them to distribute it in any manner they choose. Uh, That's point number one. Point number two on the college idea, this free college course is available where you can get the lectures for free from, like, Princeton for the whole semester on a website called edx.org. Yeah, I'm familiar. Fam- thank yeah. you, Joe. I, I want to get to Russell Kenzie. Or, uh, those of you that are holding, if you want to keep holding, we'll get to you a little bit later. I'm sorry uh, that uh, I got uh, so, uh, you know, got off track a little bit there. But um, the value of a college degree in the job play in the job marketplace, it's not the same as auditing a course for free. You may get that same knowledge. But when you go to apply to work at Merrill Lynch or J.P. Morgan Chase and uh, you're, the space for a postgraduate degree is blank and you tell them, well, but I audited postgraduate courses online for Princeton, 
I don't think the hiring manager is going to view that the same way, quite frankly. So I'm not sure where that uh, – I, I, don't, I don't think that argument with respect is really part of this discussion. Russell Kenzior has some things to say about floor safety and falls, and I am listening. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. you think of falling i think the first thing that comes to my mind is i think of uh chevy chase impersonating gerald ford on saturday night live right and you think of those uh those commercials that became a staple of uh, late night television for so many years and that have been parodied so many times i've fallen and i can't get up but if you and look at the issue of falling in this country, it is an enormous problem. I looked into this recently, and particularly for older adults, every year falls cause over 36,000 deaths and, are you ready for this, $50 billion in medical costs. So why do falls happen? Are they inevitable? What can be done about it? Someone who has been a warrior on this issue for a long time is Russell Kenzior. He is the founder of the National Floor Safety Institute. He is the president of Traction Experts, Inc., and he's really internationally recognized as the leading expert in slip and fall accident prevention. Uh, Russell, thanks so much for uh, joining me on the radio. It's great to talk to you. No, my pleasure, Frank. And uh, first of all, let me say that I enjoyed the conversation uh, you just had with your audience. And by the way, you have a very well-informed audience. And uh, somebody had hosted an AM radio show for a brief stint during COVID. Let me tell you, that's that's not easy to uh, <laughs> to get. So 
Uh, you're doing a great job. Well, I appreciate that. Don't let our secret out that our audience is so well-informed. They're going <laughs> to kick me off the radio if people know that. Um, so um, I gave a couple of statistics. Uh, fi- uh, 36,000 or so uh, deaths from falls, $50 billion in medical costs. In general, though, what else can you tell us about how big a problem falls are in this country, Russell? Well, they're ginormous. Uh, first of all, let me update your statistics because they just released and when I say they, the Centers for Disease Control and the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission just released the updated statistics, which date back to 2020. Frank, it's now 42,000 deaths. deaths. Wow. And deaths. And 100, if you add it all up, not just medical coverage, but insurance, litigation, everything. You add it up, it's about $150 billion, that's with a B, dollars a year. That's a Gulf War expenditure every year. It's massive, and it, and it affects everybody. Uh, every time we go to the supermarket, every time we go to buy food uh, at a restaurant, it's reflected in the cost of the products that we're, uh, we're buying and we're using because the number of, of just, just a sheer volume is absolutely overwhelming. The Centers for Disease Control estimate about 6 million people go to the emergency room each year as a result of a fall. Most of those are slips and falls. And as you noted, most of them are our nation's elderly. They're far more likely to experience a fall and far more likely to either uh, die as a result of the fall or have very, very serious injuries, landing them into a, uh, a nursing home. And in your intro, uh, I thought you were going to bring up America's Funniest Home Videos because they like talking about this subject in a comical way. You may remember back just, what was it, about a year ago, that Bob Saget, the host of American uh, America's Funniest Home Videos died as a result of a slip and fall. You know, I, I I didn't realize or I'd forgotten that Bob Saget. That's very ironic that he died as a result of uh, of a fall. As as somebody that's devoted a long time to this and spends your time on this, how do you feel about that? That uh, for the last forty, fifty years, maybe more, maybe going back centuries, so much of society seems to view slipping and falling uh, as something to be used for humor. Do you find that uh, offensive or, or what's the story in terms, as far as no. you go? No, I mean, you can't control what you find to be funny. Um, and most people globally, when they see somebody fall, they naturally instinctively kind of laugh. Um, it, it doesn't mean anything it, in, in terms of, you know, ill intent. Uh, but because of that, many people don't take the subject Seriously, they, they think, oh, well, just watch where you're walking. Uh, you know, must have been your fault. And, and, and look, uh, fraud. We hear a lot about fraud. Uh, mainstream media loves to cover fraud. They, they like to show, you know, people pouring water in a local grocery store, coming back, laying on the ground and filing a claim. Frank, that's a very small percentage of the number of people that are falling. In fact, it represents about 3 to 5%, meaning 97% of all the, the, the falls that are caught on surveillance video, say at the local grocery store, 97%, Frank, are legitimate. But you never see those and on uh, television. Of those 3 to 4% that are, are fraudulent, um, what um, I would think that either the insurance company or some investigative entity probably tends to do a fairly good job rooting out those instances of fraud, right? Uh, no, no, they don't. They okay. don't. No, look, it, fraud, fraud investigations are expensive. And if, if anything, they're going to end with prosecution. And that's just so rare. 
So it's just easier, just a business model, Frank. It's easier to pay the claims wow. and pass that cost along to the consumer. They just take a shortcut. Um, um, and that ahead. exacerbates the problem as well. No, no doubt about it. You alluded to the fact uh, that a lot of the victims here of both the deaths and the injuries are uh, mostly older folks. How old are we, are we talking about? Um, well, it begins at about age 70 when falls become the leading cause of accidental injury and death. Believe it or not, Frank, when you hit 70, you're most likely, uh, in terms of your odds of dying, uh, of dying from a fall, uh, statistically. And that, that, of course, puts aside cancer, heart disease, natural causes. But as far as accidental injury, number one, and that's why most elderly people are deathly afraid of falling. If you talk to anyone who's older, you know, 75, 85, and older, they just, they are so afraid because they know somebody that died as a result of a fall or are hospitalized or in a nursing home uh, as a result of a fall. So it's it's one of those, it's one of those types of injuries that elderly people are just, you know, really, uh, really afraid of. And and so are their, their children. Think oh, sure. If, uh, absolutely. If, if mom and if mom and dad or mom or dad falls and they get hurt and they have, they're in a nursing home, you know, think about how that affects the whole family. Who's going to take care of the house? Who's going to watch the dog? You know, there's just on and on and on, not to mention the costs associated with it. It's just so expensive, and we're all, we're all kind of paying for it. So we really need to focus on prevention. The way to dig ourselves out of the hole is, first of all, understand, Frank, that most falls are preventable. They're easily preventable, but it takes commitment. It takes some money. It takes some investment like putting in the right floors. Mm. It may surprise you to know, Frank, that 25%, an estimated, estimated 25% of floors that you would go to your local home improvement store and purchase, out of the box are slippery. In fact, NFSI, the National Floor Safety Institute, just did a study this past January that showed that 12 of the 17 most popular household floor cleaners make your floors slippery. 12 out of 17. 12 out of 17. Uh, And your audience can check that out by going to nfsi.org, and you'll see the study on the the website. Uh, 12 out of the 17 products make floors slippery. So when you start adding up causation, the floor itself, the cleaning program, uh, or the cleaning product, and then lastly, Frank, footwear. Uh, What do you think the most dangerous shoe is in the world? Um, I'm going to say a slipper. You're close. It's the flip-flop huh? and the most widely worn. In fact, if you uh, come to Texas, my home state, or you know, Florida, pick a, a southern state, it's the most popular shoe you people wear, especially in the summer. And so you know, you're wearing the wrong type of shoe. You're on a floor that's inherently dangerous, that's not being properly maintained, and the risk continues to go up. And it's reflected in the elderly again because they, they lack you know, the, the uh, ability to balance themselves. Once a, once a slip is initiated, younger people can recover. Right. Older people can't. Y- and when you're 16, Frank, you hit the ground, you bounce. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when you're 60 or 70 or 80 and you hit the ground, you break. It's so uh, interesting that you say that. Everything you said. One is the, the importance of balance. And I don't know that I had appreciation for this until about a, a year and a half ago. I interviewed Bob Eubanks, who p- most people know as a talk show host or a game show host. He is involved in um, a product or at least creating awareness 
about this thing called balance board, which is supposed to improve the balance in elderly people. Your point on the flip-flops is so interesting. Last summer, my wife and I were on vacation in a beach community, and I was holding my one-year-old son wearing flip-flops, and we were in a restaurant, and I was just walking around, and I stumbled and almost fell while holding my son. And, and you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty light on my, uh, my feet. I, if I did not have such a good balancing situation, there would have been serious injuries for one or or both of us. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Russell Kenzior. He is the founder of the National Floor Safety Institute. He's also uh, the author of several books, including Falls Aren't Funny, America's Multi-Billion Dollar Slip and Fall Crisis. Hey, Russell, how did you get involved in this? What was the genesis of uh, of your involvement in terms of floor safety? That's not uh, that's not a typical career that you hear on career day at kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a career path then, and it's it's a difficult one today. Uh, I graduated from college, went to a school in Illinois, moved to Texas, started my first job working as a uh, salesman for a uh, floor covering distributor, and one of the things that I heard a lot, Frank, from my customers is, hey, you know, we bought the floor and it's slippery. What can we do to make it safer? So I went back to my management. They said, well, you know, we don't want to get involved. We don't want to get sued. See, liability. Nobody wants to talk about this, Frank. It's it's a dirty little secret. So it wasn't got in, don't get involved. We might get sued. So on my own, I started just, you know, looking up products that I might be able to refer to my, my customers. And when I came to the conclusion, uh, surprisingly, is that, you know, most people are using soap or detergent-based cleaning products on their floors. That's kind of what we do. Well, Frank, what did your mother teach you when you're you know, speaking of childhood kindergarten? If you wanted to make you know, a ring come off your finger, how do you make things slippery? Well, you put soap on them, right. soap and water, right? And so my kind of epiphany was, well, gosh, maybe, maybe that's the problem. It's that soap film on the floor that we all apply that when wet activates the film and it turns it into a lubricant. So in 1990, many years ago, I quit my job and went out and started my first company called Traction Plus and invented a entire line of slip and fall prevention cleaning products. That's kind of how I started. Mm. Uh, I'd be honest with you, Frank, it was a it was a beating. It took three years of total failure. I mean, I got up every day and failed. And then one day, uh, you know, and again, I was bringing products out to my previous customers, restaurants and buildings and facilities, and they were my guinea pigs. And so for three years of a starving entrepreneur, I had my first national account, and that was uh, McDonald's restaurants. They uh, started buying the product. From there, the company grew to footwear. I developed a line of footwear called uh, Traction Plus Tread Safe Shoes. For your audience, they probably recognize that name. That's the Walmart brand, Tread Safe Shoes. Uh, company grew. I developed a pop, the, the pop open wet floor sign. Frank, you've seen them. Go yeah. Them. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No. I, called, yeah, go ahead. We called them safety. No, we called them safety tents. It, if, and so I, if people want to check out these products, by the way, what's the best way for them to uh, to do that? Well, uh, I well, I don't own them anymore. I don't own the company. I built the company up. We had five divisions. I We did training, education. I had an expert witness arm, but we had a lot of products. I'm an entrepreneur. That's how I think. Problem solving. My degree from college is in mathematics. And for those who are listening, if you ever ask yourself, well, what good is a math degree? Well, let me tell you, if if, at the very least, it teaches you how to solve problems. And who doesn't want to hire a problem solver? 
so that's what I did, Frank. It kind of grew. And then from my when I sold the company off, I broke the company into five parts and basically retired. I mean, I built the largest company that dealt with this subject in the world. But so Russell, so a lot of a lot of a lot of people yeah. listening now and you know they might be a little older and whether it's falls due to footwear, whether it's fall, uh, falls due to cleaning products, whether it's falls due to floor issues, the, I think a lot of people probably want to avoid uh these kind of falls. So is there any sort of resource whether you stand to gain uh financially or not, is there any resource that you'd recommend to folks either on the cleaning product level, the flooring level, the footwear level, that will uh, lead them to a safer place in terms of fall avoidance? Absolutely. And uh, I would recommend everyone go to the National Floor Safety Institute website. That's nfsi.org. I I founded that organization 26 years ago. Uh, Today, it's one of the largest, if not the largest in the world that deals with this subject. So there's a lot of information on the site, educational materials, But most importantly, Frank, you can actually look up uh, on the website a list of NFSI-approved products, meaning products that don't make floors slippery. Manufacturers voluntarily submit them to the NFSI for testing. We author all the national standards uh, on slip, trip, and fall prevention. And another thing I would ask your audience to consider doing is uh, we submitted a petition to the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, just about a month ago, demanding that the federal government start to take action by demanding that manufacturers of floors, floor cleaning products, and shoes, footwear, test and label their products. Frank, when you go to the supermarket and mm. you buy shoes, you have no idea, no idea how slippery that floor is out of the box. No idea what effect that floor cleaning product has on, on mopping your mom's floor or your grandmother's floor. You have no idea how slippery the shoes you buy. You know how you find out, Frank? When you fall. When you, Yeah, when you fall. It's a bad way to find out. Now, all the testing methods and standards have been well-established. NFSI led the way in that. Manufacturers in general, Frank, oppose testing and labeling wow. because they don't want liability. They don't want to tell you what their product's performances or failures are because, number one, it's bad for business. But you know what? we got to have good fair representative data so the consumer knows what they're buying. So so in essence, you want that Consumer Product Safety Commission to do a better job uh, with footwear, with floors, with cleaning products, at least informing the public of what the likelihood is of it being, I don't know, prone, uh, leading to a fall. Yeah. I mean, if you want to buy flip-flops, go ahead. You know, we're very pro-business. But the manufacturers of flip-flops should put at least, at the very least, Frank, a hang tag on the product saying, hey, this is a low-traction product. Wear at your own risk. If you want to wear them, wear them. You know, I get involved in a lot of lawsuits. Big retailers get sued all the time for slips and falls. Many are associated with customers wearing flip-flops. And they'll oftentimes blame the customer. Well, it was your fault. Look, you're wearing flip-flops. Uh, they're dangerous. Right, but no one, no one told say, them that the flip-flop was going to lead to them falling yeah. when there was a cleaning product, another slippery fl- cleaning cl- f- product on the floor. Yeah, Russell, I very absolutely. much enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate it. I hope we can do it again soon. No, thank you, Frank. Uh, Russell Kenzior, uh, check him out, uh, tractionexperts.com. 
or the um, the uh, Institute for the National Floor Safety. You can find them. Just Google National Floor Safety. It comes uh, right up. Uh, they're on Twitter at NFSI underscore as well. There's some good articles on there about uh, falling and so forth. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Every day with you, girl, is sweeter than the day before. Every day I love you more and more, more and more. Every day with you, girl. Classics four and Mr. Yost, Dennis Yost. Um, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, join the Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. You know, I got an email here uh, about uh, Liberia, of all things. Now. <laughs> want to get into a whole Liberia discussion, but this person wrote me that um, they speak English in Liberia. I I realized that. I was not being literal. The guy called from a place called Monroe, and I know the city in Liberia is Monrovia, so I know he's not in Liberia. It was a reference to him being in another country, and maybe that's why people don't speak English. You know, again, I don't think, maybe we should have Chris Libertini come up with a, an alarm that says hyperbole alert uh, and or sarcasm alert. The joke was that he wouldn't tell us which Monroe he was in. And I said, oh, maybe it's the one in Africa. And it's not Monroe. It's Monrovia. I realized that. He also says that um, slaves were not or freed slaves were not shipped there. They went voluntarily. Uh, and again, I didn't want to get into the whole history of the foundation of Liberia in the 19th century, but um, James Monroe did procure that land for people that wanted to go voluntarily. So he did not force them to go. I didn't. I should have. Uh, I should have been more precise in my language. But had I known we were going to be discussing Liberia, I would have been. It just kind of happened. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I apologize to our vast Liberian audience. You know who um, who listens to this show on almost a daily basis. He usually only listens to the first hour. But my friend Al Curtis is Liberian. And his brother used to be the head of the Liberian Association. His father was a very big Liberian politician. So, Al Curtis, if you're up awake right now, if you're listening, call in and uh, offer your perspective on Liberia, if you like. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Brian is in Baltimore. Hello, Brian. Hey, Frank. Uh, listen, I a very great, a great subject on the falls. Uh I experienced one getting out of my shower, and I have a not like most people a towel, a bathroom floor. I have a, a shower mat, but I hit the bathroom floor. That's the last I've remembered. I woke up, as far as I know, a day later. Uh, my hair was glued to the towel floor oh. with blood. I cracked my head backwards, and uh, 
after that point, every room in my house is carpeted. And at least it solves part of the problem, at least I would assume. Uh, so I would suggest if anybody is older like I am, and 70 or older, uh, or even younger, I mean, anybody can fall uh, when you have a slick flooring, especially these hardwood floors. So, uh, no, I have everything carpeted, and uh, I, I really, uh, I'm really glad I did it. Brian, I am too. Glad you're okay. Uh, I, since this interview started a half hour ago, I have been deluged with text messages and emails from people listening, sharing their own fall horror stories, someone's father, someone's mother, someone themselves. So I'm hearing a lot about this. This is a big problem, and there's a reason I wanted to devote uh, some attention to this on the radio, because honestly, I listen to a lot of radio. I never hear this talked about, and the reality is it's a huge problem, and we need to do something about it. And uh, I think... What Russell is doing with the uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission is a good place to start, in all candor. Um, You know what I found? Two things. I I was debating whether or not I should mention this, but I will. So I, um, I, we had decided to suspend John from Brooklyn from the Facebook group because he was just getting too aggressive with tagging people who did not want to be tagged. And I'm at the point where a dozen people a day are writing to me complaining about the tagging. So I politely asked him to stop. He kept at it, so he's been suspended. So if you don't participate in the Facebook group because of John from Brooklyn, you can participate for the next 28 days. Your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. care terribly much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, because, you know, honestly, I just I just don't. I don't know why. You can't really explain why you care about certain things and why you don't. Um, and, you know, it's their thing, right? Um, it's their thing. They want to put in whoever they want to put in. So be it. But have you looked at the performer's? that are going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, the 2023 class of inductees. So you have Sheryl Crow is going in. Sheryl Crow, great performer, very great singer, no question. You have Missy Elliott going in to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You have... Willie Nelson going in to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Fine. All great performers. You know, again, Missy Elliott I could take or leave, but I like Sheryl Crow. I like Willie Nelson. Um, But can anybody really say that the music that Sheryl Crow and Willie Nelson and Missy Elliott produce... Can anybody really say that it's rock and roll? And I have noticed that, and good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you for listening. 
Frank Morano here, um, 800-848-9222. Last year's inductees, same thing. Dolly Parton was inducted in 2022. And this is a trend that Eminem was inducted last year. This is a trend that has continued. Harry Belafonte inducted last year. I'm glad he was inducted before he died. But... um. These are all great artists who've had remarkable careers, and it's their their private little club. They can throw anybody they want in there. But why do they still keep calling it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Wouldn't the simpler thing to do be to simply call it the Music Hall of Fame? And this way you put in anyone you want from every genre of music. It almost reminds me – it's like if there was a Radio Hall of Fame – and they say, all right, we're going to put in, and I realize there is Radio Hall of Fame, we're going to put in uh, Imus and uh, Rush Limbaugh and um, Howard Stern, and we're going to put in, um, oh, I don't know, Pat Sajak. Well, excuse me, Pat Sajak wasn't on the radio. He was on television. But it doesn't matter. He had an impact on the media. I think it's that same thing. Rock and roll is a very specific type of music. And I realize within the the rock and roll genre, there's all sorts of gradations of what is rock and roll. Certainly Elvis Presley doesn't sound like, um, I don't know, Rage Against the Machine, who's another one of this year's uh, year's, uh, inductees. There's hard rock, there's alternative rock. But Willie Nelson is not a rock and roll artist. Dolly Parton is not a rock and roll artist. And I'm curious how you feel about non-rockers being admitted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I would have no issue with it, but for the fact that they still call it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's like calling something that's a cola 7-Up. It's just, it's not what it is. It's soda. If you want to call it soda, let's call it soda. But don't say a country star or a hip-hop star or a rap star is going in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, put them in the Music Hall of Fame. That's my contention. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Much like Beetlejuice, all you have to do is say the words music thrice and Alex Barnard, our resident music aficionado and performer, uh, shows up to comment on it. What's your take on this whole situation? Well... First of all, I do I see your point more or less about calling it the Music Hall of Fame, but I, or I something think, else, yeah, or the, something else. You know, I think of it more as do these artists have influence on popular music that may include rock and roll? For example, Willie Nelson, to you can argue has had a a big influence on rock music of a certain of certain decades. Well, and same thing with Dolly Parton. Well, let's start with Willie Nelson. How? What influence has Willie Nelson had on rock and roll music? I mean, I, I can't maybe off the top of my head think of any, but I'm sure if I looked up um, guitarists, for example, or um, certain musicians, they would all they would say Willie Nelson was important to me in my formative years, much like um, Johnny Cash, for example. Not necessarily rock and roll, and yet he is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if I'm not mistaken, because of his influence on a lot of rock musicians. 
And, and okay, so let's say that's true. So, are we saying that that's the that's the criteria for for artists? Is that you just have to have not even produce rock and roll, just influence somebody that that might have produced rock and roll? I I would say. I mean, that's part of the reason why I think Kate Bush is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because she's not a huge she's not a huge name before Stranger Things. She wasn't yeah. huge. So we played one of those Kate Bush songs, uh, the, the the one that uh, kind yeah, of came up back into fashion recently, and. I don't even think that that if you want to have a liberal interpretation of what rock and roll is, I think that fits the the bill. I mean, it's it's very different from, I don't know, the kind of thing that Alan Freed would play. But it's a lot closer to the rock genre than Willie Nelson is. I just um, I I don't like it. I don't like it. I, I, I realize the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is only, I don't know, 30 years old, something along those lines. But I feel like it has gotten so off the the path for which it was conceptualized that I feel like it ceases to be a rock and roll hall of fame. Yeah, more or less. I mean, I I can see that. My my biggest gripe with it and this year I was happy to see Rage Against the Machine in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because I really do like them. But I have but two words that to me should be in Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden Needs yeah, to be in the I Rock and Roll Hall you. of Fame. I would agree. Now, but again, it's like it's a private group, right? The listeners or the fans don't get to vote on who goes in or anything, do they? Well, they yeah, they do. There is oh, a fan do. vote. Yeah, oh, there is a fan, yeah. vote. and the fans determine who goes in. It's they don't really determine, but it see. plays that it plays no. a part. No, like, no, they, they, there's a fan vote, but it barely determines anything. It's yeah. it's people in the music business that vote on the artist. It's never ever been truly a rock and roll hall of fame even from the beginning so if i'm looking i'm looking at the inductees of the first class james brown was in the first class ray charles was in the first class yeah, yeah. are they rock and roll no well i heard that this really started in the mid 2000s to change significantly uh when uh, they had uh they started putting people like run dmc and public enemy and nwa in there yeah they started putting uh, so, like hip hop okay. artists so why call it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I think it just because I've always said this because it sounds cooler than calling it the Music Hall of Fame. I I don't like and it. I don't well, like the it. other reason is they also say that hip hop has derived from rock and roll, I, I and that all R and B and rock and hip hop it's all connected. I, I, plus, I don't like Frank. I'm on board with you. Thank I you. think it's Thank stupid. You, plus, not to mention they that do me. they do have a Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville as well. That so is true. why not put Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton in that? I'm sure they're already in. You know what? I mean, it's almost like in the world of sports, are we going to start putting cricketeers exactly. into the baseball hall of fame? Yes. If someone's swing was influenced by a, a, a cricket player, I think it's silly. And I just don't understand why there's not a broader outcry. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know why everyone just sits by and accepts Oh, we're going to call this the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and put in all these people that have that that have not produced rock and roll music. It's just I think it's silly. I, I really do. Uh, there's a lot of radio people I know, and thank you for your service, Alex. Appreciate it. Um, there's a lot of radio people that I know who are influenced by Johnny Carson. Now, Johnny Carson might have done something on radio, but primarily he was known as a, a TV performer. So should he be in the Radio Hall of Fame? Of course not. It's just silly. So my vote is that they change the name. Now, nobody cares what I say. But if um, if I tell you and then you tell two friends and they tell two friends and so on and so on, you never know. 
We could make a a difference here. All right, we're going to do the AC report with Will Reynolds, the Atlantic County prosecutor, in just a moment. Um, Big shout-out to our listeners in uh, WOND, Talk 1400, Atlantic City. Grateful to be on there. Let me take a quick call from JR in Brooklyn, though. Hello, JR. Yeah, the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, is, is it was started by a record company and Rolling Stone magazine. So it really is just a catchy name. It has nothing to do with genres of music, and it's probably similar to payola, where companies were paying for their artists to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. To do with the genre, it's just a cool name. They use it, like I said, it was created by a record company and Rolling Stone magazine. Rolling Stone magazine doesn't care about the genre either. They've always made their articles about the music industry itself, regardless of the genre. Yeah, I, I think. thank you, Chair. I appreciate that. I think they should change the name. That's my two cents. I don't know what you think. Why is crime going up in many cities around the country? Is Atlantic City a safe, safe to visit? A safe city to visit? That are Those are a few of the questions that I have for Atlantic County Prosecutor Will Reynolds as we go live to Atlantic City straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. side of midnight this is the ac report time for our weekly look at the most interesting 48 blocks in america now it is very unusual for a national radio program with listeners in every time zone and actually an international radio program because we have listeners in australia in europe all over the place to spend a weekly segment just looking at one city in one state. But for whatever reason, the indication we've gotten is is that it's working. We've gotten a lot of feedback from people who write in with more questions about Atlantic City. And believe it or not, whether we're talking about the casinos, whether we're talking about the restaurants, last week we did a whole uh, segment about the arts of Atlantic City. The number one question, not only from people in New York and in New Jersey, but people in Alaska and Tennessee and around the world is, 
is Atlantic City safe? Well, who better to address that question than the top prosecutor in all of Atlantic County, New Jersey? I'm very, very pleased to welcome the Atlantic County prosecutor, Will Reynolds. Mr. Reynolds, it's great to talk with you. Welcome to the program. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity, Frank. And I got to tell you, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. And I'd love to talk about Atlantic City, Atlantic County. I'm born and raised here. And uh, it's been an amazing journey to get the job. And now I've been on almost a year, uh, an even greater journey to do the job. Well, that's terrific. And uh, your reputation uh, and across party lines is pretty is pretty pristine, which is very rare in uh, public service in general, but in South Jersey especially. L- let's talk a little bit about the job itself. I think everybody listening, at least in the United States, has an idea of what either the DA or the county prosecutor does. You, Your office makes the call about what crimes are prosecuted in that county, and then you administer the prosecution, negotiate a plea, or prosecute the case at trial. In a lot of places, New York, for instance, the county prosecutor is elected. That's not the case in New Jersey. It's not the place, not the case in a lot of places around the country. And sort of the argument in favor of appointed county prosecutors rather than elected ones is that that takes the politics out of the system a little bit. They're not going to be grandstanding. They're not going to be taking cases that uh, they might not otherwise bring just to get a short-term political benefit. The argument in favor of elected prosecutors instead of appointed ones is that there's a level of accountability to the public that's not there if uh, the prosecutor just has to be appointed by the governor or someone else. As somebody that uh, has been appointed and now serving for over a year, which do you think is the better system, elected prosecutors, appointed prosecutors, or do you think there's room for both? I do think there is room for both, and I can speak of my experience going through the nomination process. Uh, I can tell you, Frank, the vetting process to get to the point where the governor himself meets with you face-to-face, and then puts your name on a piece of paper and forwards it to the state Senate is a humbling process. Uh, not only uh, are you questioned by, I think, I'm going give, to give a guess, about 25 to 30 people uh, during the journey, uh, three separate background investigations, and then a final questionnaire that goes to the uh, state Senate majority leader, who then interviews you uh, with counsel, you want to talk about being grilled and being tested and being pressured. Uh, An election process will never have that happen because you can, you know, have a debate or maybe get a couple of reporters asking you questions. I went through such a rigorous process and you hit the nail on the head. I have relationships on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I'm an independent and have been independent my entire professional career in South Jersey, which is a, a rarity. I'm a unicorn, uh, and I've been so blessed by having those relationships on both sides. So uh, based upon the rigorous uh, investigation and background and uh, process that I went through, I would lean towards the nomination and Senate confirmation hmm. process. If you were to answer the question that I get almost every week about Atlantic City specifically, and then we could talk about the other challenges you face around Atlantic County, 
Atlantic City, there's a lot of concern, especially about people that might be considering visiting there, that it's not a safe place to be, that there's too much drugs, there's too much street crime, and that if you walk around the streets of Atlantic City, you take your life in your hands. As this guy that sees all the arrest reports from everybody that's arrested in Atlantic City, is that true? Uh, Is there any truth to those concerns? Is there anything that you can say to alleviate some of those fears? Sure. So I can give you a couple different uh, statistics, which will show Atlantic City is much safer today uh, than it was, say, 10 years ago. And I'll give you I'll give you examples of two things. So uh, 10 years ago, there was upwards of 20, sometimes 23, 24, 25 homicides in a year. Knock on wood this year, we've had only two and we're almost halfway through the year. Uh, last year in Atlantic City, uh, from the time that I was sworn in, uh, we had a total of seven. Five were gun-related, two were stabbings, and uh, almost all of them, with the exception of one, uh, was really, you know, like gang-related, you know, drug territory, that kind of stuff. So not not a visitor, not a guest, not someone that's coming to Atlantic City, but generally bad guys shooting at each other, right? Um, one was a, a homeless incident. Another one was a, like an internet, uh, kind of scam kind of deal. Right. So at the end of the day, uh, 10 years ago, you know, in excess of 20 to 25 homicides last year, seven in Atlantic city this year, only two. Uh, and I use that as a, just as a gauge of, mm. you know, the decrease in violent crime in Atlantic city. I can also give you another statistic, which I really am proud of. Uh, since our administration has taken over, uh, we do uh, everything in our power to detain the violent criminals. We actually created a system uh, to identify and target those uh, most dangerous criminals on the streets in Atlantic City and Atlantic County. And we have been successful in detaining the most dangerous criminals. And our detention rate, Frank, is 50 percent in Atlantic County for 2022. And the state average in New Jersey was 20 percent, and that included our 50 percent. So we had had a very successful year. Why are you able to do that, and your counterparts in other parts of the state of New Jersey aren't? Why are you able to detain people uh, to the tune of 50 percent, whereas it's 20 percent around the rest of the state? How can that be? I'm sure there are a lot of well-intentioned prosecutors in the rest of the state as well. So it's uh, it's really threefold. It's those relationships that I've had before I entered the office because I'm born and raised here uh, and have three older brothers that are born and raised in the county as well. Uh, so it's relationships with both internal and external in the office, police departments, municipal police departments, as well as superior court judges uh, who are listening to the facts and making an independent decision on each case. And each case is being being judged on the facts uh, and the public safety assessment. So they get PSA scores. And our office is very aggressive in moving for detention. And we have a very talented team of assistant prosecutors led by uh, our first assistant prosecutor, Eric Bergman. And we have put policies in place to detain and to successfully detain those individuals who are a public safety risk to our community. And what we really focus on is making the judge who's doing the detention hearing aware of all of those facts 
you know, like the defendant's criminal history, like the specific facts of the crime they just committed, of the recency and the, the redundancy of the crime that they're committing. You know, one of the lines we like to use is, there's a lot of people out there that are committing crimes, but there's only a few people that are like the one-person crime wave. Well, we're getting all those people who are committing the crime over and over again. We're getting them off mm. the street. That's been successful. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with uh, Atlanta County Executive Denny Levinson, and he talked about one of the great challenges that the whole state of New Jersey, but Atlanta County specifically, has been facing over the course of the last 10 years has been the bail reform that uh, Governor Chris Christie advocated for and still defends to this day. And the voters of the state of New Jersey adopted. They didn't go quite so far as New York went a few years later. But Levinson said, and I'm paraphrasing, that that inability to keep people in jail as they're awaiting trial has led to an uptick in crime around the state and Atlantic County. From your perspective, do you think he is stating the problem and the situation accurately? I think it is accurate to a certain extent. I think there has been uh, things done in the past uh, in Atlanta County and other counties where there may not have been as, as, as an aggressive move towards detention. Uh, I'm a stats guy. I, I literally follow and track uh, not only our own, our own county stats, but also other county stats. And it really starts at leadership. So when the leadership is uh, promoting the aspect of pointing out those public safety assessment factors to the judge, you then build a, basically we build like a book of facts for certain gangs and gang members. And we actually are the leader in the state in prosecuting gang criminality, which basically makes a second degree crime into a first degree crime if you can prove that they're a member of the gang. And then that makes somebody be facing a 20-year sentence as opposed to a 10-year sentence, which then ups the public safety assessment risk factors. So under, like, just straight bail reform, are there times where people get out that would have never gotten out before? Yes. Uh, you need to be creative, and you need to create policies, and you need to actually have really good intel people who build those books on the criminal defendants who are committing those crimes, the recidivists. You preside over all the prosecutions in Atlantic County. And if people just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Atlantic County prosecutor Will Reynolds. And I know there's a lot of municipalities in Atlantic City, uh, excuse me, in Atlantic County, including Atlantic City. But you also have Brigantine. You have Egg Harbor City, Egg Harbor Township. uh, The list goes on and on. Ventnor, Margate. And really, even though there are so many different municipalities, all of which I'm sure present their own unique challenges, in some ways, I view your job as almost having to preside over Atlantic City and everywhere else in the county, because Atlantic City is just so much different in terms of the commerce, in terms of the tourism, in terms of the ethnic makeup, in terms of, I'm sure, the type of crimes that are that are committed than every other municipality in Atlantic County. Uh, Talk to me about how you handle a challenge like that, uh, dealing with one particular aspect of your county, which is noticeably different in every cultural respect, every economic respect, every single respect, really, than the rest of the county. How do you handle a challenge like that? 
So great question because it is one of the biggest hurdles in doing this job is that you have to approach each of the municipalities uh, differently from a perspective of what their needs are, but the same as to how you treat, you know, the defendants, the victims, the witnesses that are, you know, part of the criminal justice system for the county. How Atlantic City differs is goes back to exactly what I said from day one when I got in there is we need to build trust with the community, right? So that's the, the leaders of the community that we're representing, right? Then you have to build trust with the casino industry, and the leaders of the casino industry have been amazing to deal with for me. Uh, the Casino Association is headed up by Mark G. Antonio, who is the president of resorts. Uh, Mark has been a tremendous partner. And then you have to deal with the uh, Lancy Police Department, and I have a lot of friends that have been police officers there for 20-plus years. So I had a ton of relationships with people that are in the department, including, you know, the command staff. Uh, most of them were all parents around the same age, our kids around the same age. We see each other at the sports fields and known each other, you know, our whole lives, whether playing sports with or against each other. Uh, also a huge advantage. But what it really comes down to is the, the collaboration of not only law enforcement from ACPD to the FBI, to the state police, to the DEA, to Homeland Security, to the Division of Criminal Justice. It literally comes down to having relationships with all of those different partners on the law enforcement side. And then what I did is I connected the casino industry and we have security director meetings with the casino security directors with all those state and federal agencies all in the same room. And then we created this other wing of that called the at-risk initiative. So we have a violent crime initiative where we identify the real violent offenders. And then we identify the people who are committing the quality of life crimes through the at-risk initiative. And then we share all the information between law enforcement, both local, state, and federal, as well as the social services providers that actually are giving people the services and the help that they need. And then we created a seven-day-a-week mobile outreach with uh, Sheriff Scheffler through Hope One and Senator Palestina, a Republican and Democrat, working together with me in the middle. And we've been extremely successful in identifying those issues, listening to the stakeholders, listening to the community. And Councilman Shabazz has been absolutely a tremendous connector and a great resource for me. And, uh, you know, we're working with everybody, and that's how we've been successful. And it, you were right. It is, there is nowhere else like this uh, on the East Coast. And uh, I would argue that Vegas is extremely different than the dynamics and logistics we have in Atlantic City. So it is a unique job. It's a 24-7 job. It's a meat grinder. I go in every day as a side of beef and come out as a pound of hamburger <laughs> at about 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> but, Frank, I wouldn't trade it for the world because I grew up here. I was born and raised here. You know, my brothers were raised here. We're raising our children here, and we want our children to raise their children here. That's, so, uh, that is, that's terrific. Something that uh, we've seen all over the country is an uptick in violent crime since uh, 2020 with all the lockdowns. And then that even took uh, an upturn since the unrest regarding the uh, George Floyd situation and uh, all of that. A lot of people have said that the uptick in violent crime is uh, due to one factor or another. Now that life has sort of gotten back to normal all over the place, are you seeing crime get back into a more familiar 
pattern. Obviously, even if there's only two homicides, that's too, too many. But are we are, do you think that sort of the bad old days of two years ago, three years ago, are they past us now? Are we back to a place where crime is, I hate to use the term, but at a normal level? I'm going to say what we've done in Atlanta County collectively, and this includes the local police departments and our office with all those partners I mentioned, is we've actually made it better. And I'm going to give you I'm going to give you an idea of why I say that. So in 20, in 20, uh, well before I started, there were 13 homicides in the county, 11 uh, in Atlantic City. Then it stayed flat in 21. The numbers were about the same. And then in 22, we dropped uh, to seven in Atlantic City, right? And now this year, we're only at two. And when you say normalize, I'll give you some examples of, of crime that went crazy during COVID, which we now have reeled back in, okay? The low-level offenders who are the drug users who are shoplifting to feed that addiction – We, by creating this at-risk initiative, we have taken a large majority of those people off the street and afforded them opportunities in court, whether it's through the at-risk initiative or recovery court or mental health diversion, which we've created since our administration has been in, is giving them an opportunity to get help. And sometimes that answer is no, and they need to be incarcerated and be held for warrants or, you know, being held on a detention hearing to then encourage them to accept the help. So we have been successful in in a decline of violent crime as well as those quality of life crimes in Atlanta County. We've been very fortunate. We have a lot of really good partners, but it takes it takes people making decisions together and then enforcing the policy and having good partners. So for Atlantic City, Atlanta County, we are down and we are doing better than ever. And I'll give you I'll give you another stat that's really amazing because I think the opposite's happening around the country too. Uh, excessive force complaints. Atlantic City and Atlantic County Sheriff's Department have had a total of one excessive force complaint wow. in the last two years. One. Wow. Right. So the sheriff's office, sheriff's office picks up all the real bad criminals on the warrant. They have a they have a warrant squad, right? And then ACPD is arresting people, you know, by the hundredth per month. And we've had one. In, in between 21 and 22 and none in 23, right? One. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing considering, you know, our numbers are way up, our detentions are way up, our arrests are way up, and crime's down, and we only have one excessive force complaint. So I'm extremely proud of that as well because it's, it's the, the rank-and-file members of the ACPD and the Sheriff's Office that are doing that work, but it's that they feel supported by the leadership because – we're supporting them when someone is arrested. We're prosecuting that case. We're moving for detention. You know, we're we're training them. Frank, I'll give you an example. One thing we just did two weeks ago I'm really proud of. We sent young APs from our office over to Atlantic City in their municipal courtroom, and we spent an entire day training young officers and young lawyers to do direct and cross-examination, and we did mock trial all day long with new officers training them how to testify at the grand jury, how to testify on direct, how to testify on cross. That's collaboration between agencies to get people better so that we can actually better protect and serve the public. It's awesome. One challenge that I'm sure you're facing now that if you were in this job 10 years ago that you wouldn't have been facing 
are the challenges that go hand in hand with the legalization of recreational marijuana. Uh, when I would hang out in Atlantic City five, even t- ten years ago, it was a pretty rare thing to walk the boardwalk and smell marijuana or see people smoking marijuana openly on the boardwalk. There's been a lot of concern on the part of parents, on the part of uh, school teachers, educators, even rank and file citizens of what the uh, increase in recreational marijuana all over the country, but including in New Jersey, could lead to in terms of other drug use, in terms of other aberrant behavior, in terms of other crimes. From your perspective, uh, has that changed anything that you guys are doing? Uh, wh- how has the legalization of recreational marijuana and the uh, the all the legal marijuana dispensaries that are popping up in Atlantic County, how has that changed how you might do your job? So twofold. One is uh, I'll speak to that issue as a father of two 13-year-olds. I don't like it, right? I'm not I'm not a fan of it. I understand it. I understand why the legislature did it. I understand why, you know, these things are happening in today's society. I get it. I'm just not happy about it because it's exposing my children at a way too young age. And just like you said, it's been normalized, right? So I'll give you an example. One of the things that I do is I go on the boardwalk at at 6 a.m. and we literally go out to help the at-risk people uh, under the boardwalk, under piers. You know, literally we, we go from ocean casino all the way down to stockton both sides above the boardwalk below the boardwalk and then we do some hot spots where we know the at-risk population is the other day saw three guys from walking out of the casino hey guys what's going on just finished playing poker and they light up a joint right in front of us mm. it's myself and two alancy police department officers and a social services worker from jewish family services and i was like burning one down hey guys <laughs> it's like <laughs> six twenty in the morning right <laughs> so like and you just you just keep walking right we were walking on the boardwalk we had a truck and we had an atv and and uh we're walking and like we were jumping in and out of the truck and the one guy was on the atv and as we were actually walking here comes these three dudes rolling out you know smoking a joint and i'm like oh my god you know so does that change the way you, you enforce the law yeah because it's not illegal anymore and uh, people have a right to do it. And I think what needs to happen is there probably needs to be a better control on, you know, where is a good place to have that and not, you know, same way they restricted, you know, cigarette smoking in casinos. They probably need to do some type of legislation or ordinances in the towns as to where is okay to smoke and where is not okay to smoke. I can tell you I have had conversations with high-ranking state officials who aren't happy about people smoking joints on the boardwalk, right? They go for a run with their wife and they smell you know, marijuana smoke, and that's not what you're expecting when you're walking on the boardwalk. So I think the dynamics of policing have changed because it's legal or decriminalized. The other piece, Frank, which I think nobody realizes, is uh, our office, as well as many other county prosecutors, are bombarded with expungements because when they decriminalized mm. marijuana, I had, you know, literally had thousands and thousands of cases that needed to be expunged so it didn't affect people's future ability for employment or any other, you know, process that requires a background search. And, uh, you know, we needed to reallocate resources to do that. And uh, even the low-level distribution cases were uh, summarily dismissed and expunged. And then we have to go in and check every record and get state police to check and then give people a certified expungement. So that is something that 
really changed law enforcement is the expungement piece and dismissal. So. Uh, no, I can imagine. Lastly, uh, you may be a very, very good candidate to answer this question because you've lived your whole life in Atlantic County. However, mm-hmm. a, a, you even probably are a better person to ask it because you don't have to stand for election and you might not be uh, concerned about the political ramifications of your answer here. Gun to your head, if you had to pick... What would you say is your absolute favorite restaurant in all of Atlantic City? Chef Vola. Chef Vola, an oldie but a goodie. All right. Chef hey, Vola. Hey, Frank, I grew up with the Esposito brothers. Uh, they, I'm a 31st Street and Brigantine guy. They grew up on 35th Street. We played the Brigantine Rams together and street hockey together. And uh, I was uh, a young lad when they bought that. And when I became an adult, it was like one of the – one of the best experiences ever, and I love the uh, veal chop parm. There you That's go. Nice. Got a menu yeah. recommendation and everything. All right. Will Reynolds, Atlantic County prosecutor. Uh, I do hope if I ever get a little too rowdy in Atlantic City and I end up uh, in county lockup that uh, your office will consider asking the judge to release me on my own recognizance. I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it, Frank. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Will Reynolds, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, feel free to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Running up that hill, this is one of the newest entrants into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is a song that's uh, from 30 years ago, but more than 30 years ago, that everyone pretty much forgot about until they put it in an episode of Stranger Things, and now everyone's listening to it again. And we've seen that from time to time as things uh, come back into fashion when a newer work of popular culture highlights that. I mean, Quentin Tarantino was a master of that. We did a whole show recently about things that you'd like to see make a comeback. You know what I'd like to do maybe tomorrow, maybe maybe I don't know, later, maybe next week, is do a segment on things that people didn't know were still around. Things, entities, groups, people, products, whatever, stores, restaurants, anything that folks thought were gone but are still around. So put your thinking cap on for that one. That we'll work on that in the uh, in the future. Matt Blaze, um, Alex Barnard informs me that the uh, the the three knuckleheads uh, that I have the privilege of working with on a daily basis, you guys actually focused on an ep- on um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on a recent edition of the Darker Side of Midnight podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, we did when the nominations came out last week or the inductees. Well, we I, talked about it. You know, I can't help but think. 
this podcast of yours, which people can check out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com, just search uh, Darker Side of Midnight, or just search in your podcast app, it's supposed to be about things that we've covered on the show. And since we had not yet covered the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at that point, what what are you guys talking about that on the show for? On uh, the I, don't podcast re- I don't remember how we got into it. Mm-hmm. There must have been something that sparked some reason that we talked about it, which is what happens. I bet. You know how it goes. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. All right. Uh, another place that we have conversations about the show is our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. It's a great way to uh, contribute about uh, different opinions you might have about the show. It's a great way to learn what bumper music we're playing. And for the next 28 days, uh, by far our most disruptive member that's currently active in that group has been suspended for tagging people repeatedly. Even my wife, who she doesn't have enough reasons to be mad at me. Even my wife had had to come to me and said, listen, you need to remove him from the group. You, he's out of control. He's tagging me like crazy. I'm not even in this group. He adds nothing of value. And what am I going to have a fight with my wife over John from Brooklyn? Of course not. So... Um, but it was not just her. I've gotten a lot of other complaints as well. And uh, now he's suspended for 28 days. So I, I informed a couple of people about this. And Philippe, who used to sit in the Kenneth chair, he re- responds back, you're doing the Lord's work. It may be true. may be true. Um, all right. A couple of things here. Speaking of social media, you know, I so I recorded this Facebook video the other day of me uh, trying this new Patriot cigar, which I really enjoyed. And they sent me a few, which I appreciate, and I'm looking forward to trying the others. Um, and I'm, I'm told they're going to be advertising on this show, which is great. And uh, if you want to try them, uh, go to MyPatriotCigars.com and use the promo code FRANK when you order. But in this video, I saw a lot of people are were watching it. And I was curious about how many views you need on a Facebook video in order to make money. And look, I don't have a huge Facebook uh, audience, but uh, first thing that comes up is to essentially, I'll I'll spare you, there's a lot of ways, but in a nutshell, you need 180,000 minutes viewed over the last 60 days or 30,000 one-minute views um, over the last 60 days. And there's a few other uh, criteria. I feel like that it's not that bad. Now, we only have 6,000 followers, so we need everybody to share, to go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash fan, and share all of my videos and ask all of your friends to share them as well. At least, not all your friends, but at least ask five of them to share it. Because I think if everybody gets in the habit of sharing these videos, then we can get to a point where I make money with these Facebook videos. And wouldn't that be a win for everybody, honestly, if I could just make money doing these Facebook videos in addition to the radio show? I'm not taking anything away from that. I mean, you see all these other losers making money just uh, opening boxes and playing video games on social media. This is an opportunity to allow me to make money by smoking cigars on social media. I think it's a worthwhile endeavor for all of us. And you can go back. There's a lot of classic videos on there. Go to Facebook.com slash MoranoFan and then search on the video tab. There's me telling people how to play craps. There's me uh, telling people how to make an egg cream, which is sort of a lost art. 
There's uh, me, uh, I don't know, talking about Rayos. There's all sorts of, there's the hypnotism video, which some people said worked very much better in the world of uh, Facebook than it did on the radio because you could actually see the wacky things that uh, that people were doing. Hey, speaking of podcasts, so you do check out the darker side of midnight if you're interested. I did a recent podcast exclusive interview with Dan McMillan, who's been a guest on this show a couple of times. We were talking about campaign finance twice, and we were talking about um, the Holocaust once. And he is the head of a group that is pushing something called democracy vouchers or democracy dollars. And so we did about a 45-minute interview. He's the executive director of something called Save Democracy in America. We did a 45-minute interview, not on the radio, simply exclusive to the podcast, where we get into some depth in terms of what the solutions are and how democracy dollars would actually work. Here's a snippet of our conversation. What's wrong with the campaign finance system in this country today? Well, the shortest way to say it, the most brutal, and it is a brutal reality, is that we have a government that's for sale to high-dollar campaign donors. Uh, and these are really the only – and this is not government by the people, which is not really what you know our founding fathers had in mind when they wrote our Constitution. And it's it's been going on for a long time. I think you can trace it all the way back to the end of the 1970s. The last 10 years since – you know, 12 years since the Citizens United decision – the problem has just kind of ballooned in proportions. That is to say, the last three cycles, 2018, 2020, 2022, have shattered fundraising and spending records. Uh, the cost of the federal elections, White House and Congress together, more than doubled in constant dollars and in inflation-adjusted dollars from 16 to 20, from $7 billion to $14.4 billion that individuals and pressure groups spent to buy influence in Washington. And and yet, in a way, you know, if you say that special interests have all the power, that in a way in itself even drastically understates the problem. And so we get into the problem. We get into the solutions. I found every negative thing I could think to bring up about democracy dollars. And I'm not yet sold on it, but I uh, brought them all up and you could hear his answers. If you want to hear that interview, there's two ways to listen. You can go to Red Apple podcastnetwork.com and just search Frank Moreno interviews and more. Again, not airing this on the radio. This is exclusive to the podcast. Uh, Redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Search Frank Moreno interviews and more. Or you can open up any podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, whatever the case may be, and search that Frank Moreno interviews and more and uh, hit the subscribe button and you'll get that uh, exclusive content. We're going to try and do more of that exclusive content uh, up there that you don't hear on the radio. So you got to subscribe to that podcast. Now, uh, last night, I was watching uh, over Carmine. We were playing outside with the neighbors. One of our neighbors celebrated his 40th birthday. And my wife was busy transporting cats everywhere. One cat she brought back to my dad's neighborhood, which is where she was trapped, Another cat she brought somewhere else. She's dropping cats off all over the place. People are coming by to pick up traps. And I know she's running around. And this is after a full work day. And I also haven't eaten anything, so I'm starving. And so I say to her, because I would feel bad asking her to cook when she's running around, and I really 
I'm, I'm making dinner Friday. I made dinner yesterday. I say to her, um, "Do you want you want me to order something?" So I order something. Uh, she says, "What do you want?" We have all discussion. I said, "How about Indian? I'll order Indian." And I think to myself, "I'm going to use the Uber Eats app." And I wonder if I get a good rating on this Uber Eats app, will that improve my overall Uber score? It turns out it doesn't. But I had not eaten all day. It's my first meal of the day. And just like you shouldn't go to the grocery store when you're hungry, you absolutely should not order delivery when you're hungry. I ordered through this Uber Eats app. I ordered, I think, four entrees. And an appetizer sampler. I thought our neighbor John Charles was going to come over and try the Indian food. He didn't. So we have all these leftovers. So I got quite a lecture. And apparently the level of spiciness in the Indian food was not to Rachel's satisfaction. And I got quite a lecture from her on overordering. Got quite a lecture from her on the level of spice in some of the sauces. And I'll tell you what... I have not had heartburn in a while uh, because I've been staying away from, you know, a bunch of things, including uh, caffeine. And after eating this amount of incredibly spicy Indian food, I have seen heartburn return in a big way. Let this be a cautionary tale to you. Oh, by the way, one of the homes that my wife returned these cats to, 27 cats. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I am uh, going to be joined in approximately 30 minutes by Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade, uh, I am going to ask him about many subjects, including this uh, CNN town hall meeting yesterday, uh, w- which I watched. I, had, uh, I was in quite a conflict yesterday because you had on all at the same time the Met game. You had on the Jeopardy Masters tournament, and you had on this uh, Trump town hall meeting on CNN, and, uh, and Rachel was was delivering a cat somewhere, so she wasn't home. So I had a, a few minutes, or she was outside with the neighbors or something, and she. Uh, so I had a few minutes of television time myself. So a lot of times, if she normally wasn't home, I would be watching. Uh, I would maybe throw on AEW wrestling in the background, but I didn't even consider that because you had the Met game, you had Trump, and you had the um, Jeopardy Masters tournament. And Wednesday night is usually our night for uh, Ted Lasso. So we started it, but we didn't finish it. So I, don't tell me what happens anyway. 
Um, I'm going to ask Kilmeade about this uh, this town hall meeting situation. You know, it seems like a lot of Trump supporters are giving poor marks to the uh, commentator here, Caitlin Collins. It is interesting that, um, you know, Caitlin Collins, I'm sure that people didn't like that she was fact checking Trump. First of all, I I think this was a no win scenario for her. I mean, it's impossible to interview Trump. It is unless you're going to agree with everything that he says and let him say things that are inaccurate. It's impossible because he just keeps going. It's, It's like riding a bucking Bronco conversation wise. But uh, because she kept fact-checking him, you're going to have a lot of Trump supporters who say that um, she didn't do a good job. And even Trump himself called her nasty at some point. Why you held on to those documents when you knew the federal government was seeking them and then had given you a subpoena to return them? Are you them? ready? Are you ready? Can I talk? Yeah, what's you the mind? answer? Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the okay, question. Okay, it's very simple to answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to You're a nasty person, I'll tell you. <laughs> Now, that was a little snarky on her part, but he he really, I don't think, needed to call her a nasty person. And just so you know about Caitlin Collins, I've been following her career for a long time. You know where you know what her first job was seven years ago? She started covering the 2016 presidential campaign for The Daily Caller. The Daily Caller is a right wing media outlet that was started by Tucker Carlson that he used to be in charge of. And, um, for instance, you know, in 2016 or 2017, she was working for the Daily Caller. And this is sort of a typical exchange that you might hear her engage in when she would go on a network like Fox News Channel talking about, uh, say, George Soros, for instance. Do with the immigration crisis. Good morning. Okay, so George Soros is this foreign-born left-wing guy who essentially wants to change the nature of our country. And in this data dump, one of the memos was about the refugee crisis. And they made three points. They think that they've been successful at influencing immigration policy across the world. They think that the refugee crisis is an opportunity to continue doing so. And they think the refugee crisis is the new normal. And George Soros is this guy who is a staunch advocate for open borders. He wants people to be able to go wherever they want, whenever they want, for whatever reason. And for him, he sees this immigration policy, this crisis, as a vehicle to further his immigration agenda. So that's her, uh, working for the Daily Caller, going on Fox News, talking about George Soros. So you can think she did a good job, a bad job. And she's getting very mixed remarks from sort of the center-left media. A lot of the left-wing people, that's where I found that, from a left-wing person that didn't think she did a good job. A lot of the left-wing people are unhappy with her and saying that, um, you know, that she didn't do a good job. I think she had an impossible job to do. I would like to know, uh, and I'll get Brian Kilmeade's take in, uh, in 20 minutes, I would like to know the some transparency here. I'd like to know how those audience members were selected, uh, how their questions were selected. Was CNN aware of those questions prior to them being asked? And how many questions did they have to choose from? If CNN picked the people that ans- asked those questions, did they know those were the questions that were going to be asked? If, if I just would like to know. Doesn't mean it was good. Doesn't mean it was bad. It was just, just like, no, I give CNN credit for doing it. And I give Trump credit for going on there. But uh, she had a, a tough job. So anyway, um, I, oh, I got to talk about this because this has been on my uh, radar screen for, um, you know, 
a couple of days now. I told you all about the disaster of going to Atlanta and trying to come back. And it was just, it was horrible. I mean, it took my whole day. And they told me once I got to the airport that my flight back to New York was canceled. Not only was it incredibly disruptive to my schedule, but to my wife who was going to be picking me up and to uh, to everybody else. Well, now uh, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, who I didn't vote for and probably will not vote for again, he is taking issue with the airline. So just so you understand the, the backdrop here, customer satisfaction with air travel is way down for the second year in a row. And we are now heading into what could be another summer of nightmare travel. And now there is a Biden administration proposal that would require airlines to compensate passengers for delayed or canceled flights. Absolutely. This 100% should happen. I know the airlines are screaming bloody murder because this is driving prices. This will drive prices up. That's what they say is happening in Europe. There is absolutely no excuse for you to cancel my flight when I get to the airport Ruin my day, ruin my wife's day, ruin the day of the 70 passengers that were supposed to, or 60 passengers that were on that flight, and everybody that's supposed to be picking there up, and you're not going to give us anything? Uh, this is, I am more supportive of this than anything Joe Biden has ever done, at least as president. Uh, this is I am 100% in agreement with the president on this. Yeah. Is it going yeah. to drive up prices? Maybe. You know what? Um, you don't want to drive up prices. You don't want to pay people when you cancel their flight. Don't cancel their flights. Uh, I am so sick of being treated like cattle when I'm involved in airline travel. This should be a nonpartisan issue. And this should be the proposal that sails through Congress faster than anything in history. There, We are overdue for these airlines to get a comeuppance on this. In my view, if you cancel someone's flight, you should absolutely have to pay them. And uh, here was the president talking about this. This was uh, on May 8th, so that was about three days ago. Uh, here's President Biden. But I know how frustrated many of you are with the service you get from your U.S. airlines, especially after you, the American taxpayer, stepped up in 2020, the last administration, in the early days of the pandemic, to provide nearly $50 billion in assistance to keep the airline industry and its employees afloat. I get it. That's why our top priority has been to get American air travelers a better deal. We've made real progress, some of which you've just heard. Historically, when delays and cancellations are the airline's fault, the law has only required airlines to refund customers the price of their flight ticket, but not the cost of meals or hotels or transportation when you get left in limbo. In fact, a year ago, almost no major airline guaranteed any compensation beyond the price of the ticket. 
if they caused the delay, the delay was their fault. No reimbursement for a hotel after a canceled flight or a meal after a delayed flight. But then we challenged them to do better. In fact, they did. Airlines started to change their policies when they're at fault for canceling or delaying a flight. Now, nine major airlines cover hotels, 10 cover meals, 10 rebook for free. And that's a real savings for middle class and working class families. As far as I'm concerned, this is long overdue. Let the church say amen. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on that or anything else we've covered thus far. 800-848-9222. Leo is in Manhattan. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank. Uh, I was calling original beginning of the evening about something that happened to me and what is a little bit comparable to what happened on the subway Uh you know, I'm putting every night, uh, five, uh, every month, 5,000 miles in Manhattan, even though I'm calling pretty often from Upper East Side or Upper West Side. I'm, I'm downtown often, too. From the subway station Lafayette, uh, Lafayette Houston, every, at any point of the day, there is a, within one minute, one minute of the drive, the entrance of the subway is about four to five police cars. Uh, I don't know how far is it to the, you know, to the platform from the entrance to the subway, but uh, let's assume it's definitely not more than five minutes. I don't understand the 15 minutes, what actually caused a life, this guy. Now, three days ago, I was on the Broadway on the west side and, and 86th Street. I almost ran guy, homeless guy. In a, there's a four-line 86th Street and Broadway's four lines, too. In the middle of the street, I almost ran over a homeless who was rolling there in, uh, on the floor, rolling in the middle of the street. So I was going Broadway up. Right. So, uh, Leo, again, you're talking to a, a, a national audience here, right, that might not be familiar with. I blow my horn. I told okay. them that. Thank you. Thank you, Leo. Um, Hey, uh, 800-848-9222, I am all for this Biden proposal on the airlines to uh, compensate passengers if they get get screwed by their airlines. Let me know where you are on that, 800-848-9222. I was talking about uh, this house with 27 cats that my wife visited yesterday, and she comes home. I'm flipping between Jeopardy Masters and the uh, Trump Town Hall and the Met game. And she comes home and she said, this is the first word she said, didn't even say hello. She said, the the next time you're annoyed by one of these cats crawling on you or even two cats bothering you and not letting you sleep, just thank your lucky stars that you do not live in a house with 27 cats. 27 cats? I said, that's more than Curtis has. 27 cats. I said, wait a minute. So you mean this cat? That has been living in our garage for four or five days post-surgery and recovering. You mean that that cat actually lives in a house? Then why are we taking care of this cat? Shouldn't the people responsible for this cat take care of them? And uh, she said to me, it really wasn't clear to me what the situation was there. This particular cat appears to be an indoor-outdoor cat that is... 
that occasionally pops in and occasionally doesn't, and he doesn't live there full time. He's do he uses that house as sort of a a pied a terre or a cat a terre. But uh, can you imagine the smell? I don't care how clean someone is, if they live with twenty seven cats, that smell has got to be just horrible. I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. All right, 800-848-9222. Some very exciting news. I know that many of you are sick of hearing me talk about Star Trek, and I don't blame you. And I do talk about Star Trek a lot, and that's that's fair. That's a fair criticism. However, uh, I have heard your criticisms, and I am now going to talk about Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is a terrific TV program that ran for five seasons. I enjoyed every minute of it. They also had several great made-for-TV movies, including one with Martin Sheen, which was terrific. And if you're not familiar with Babylon 5, this is how the uh, episode of Babylon 5 would begin. It was the dawn of the third age of mankind. Ten years after the Earth-Minbari War, the Babylon Project was a dream given form. Its goal to prevent another war by creating a place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for diplomats, hustlers, entrepreneurs, and wanderers. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. Now, that is... It can be a dangerous place, but it's our last best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2258. The name of the place is Babylon 5. That was such a stirring introduction, and that's from the first season where the commander on Babylon 5, which I think that 45 seconds or however much it was, it really does a good job encapsulating what that series was. It was sort of a, a space station. Picture the United Nations as a space station. It was formed so that the Earth people and the Minbari would not have another war. It was formed to be basically an intergalactic United Nations. It was a great concept, and they had great acting on this show. The first season, the commander was Jeffrey Sinclair. Unfortunately, the actor who played Jeffrey Sinclair, great actor, Michael O'Hare, he had a lot of issues with mental illness, and he had to leave the show and then he was able to come back a couple of years later just to film two episodes. He was able to hold it together for two episodes. Did a great job. But um, it continued with Bruce Boxleitner as uh, John Sheridan. Both great. And I love this show. This show, especially season four, season five, when I would see the opening credits, you ever have a moment like this where you, the combined stimulus of what you're seeing, hearing, and what you're experiencing emotionally is so emotional that you almost get goosebumps, that you get a tingling at the back of your neck. I am not joking. When I would watch the opening of Babylon 5, uh, especially the later season, that is the way I would feel. I haven't watched Babylon 5 in years, but it's it's really top-quality writing and amazing acting. Almost all the episodes were written by uh, J. Michael Straczynski. He was the, the showrunner. But anyway, why are we talking about Babylon 5? So big news this week. Babylon 5 is coming back. 
There is going to be a Babylon 5 movie, but it's going to be an animated film. And I have to tell you, I am pretty excited about this, and I'm hoping to invite on uh, J. Michael Straczynski, the showrunner of Babylon 5, to, um, to, you know, to talk about this. Because you have a situation here where so many of the cast members, not just uh, uh, Michael O'Hare, whose voice you just heard there, but a lot of the other cast members have died. And for some reason, this show, they say it might be cursed. Um, Andreas Katsulis, who's a great uh, Shakespearean actor who played Jakar, he died. Um, We're seeing uh, a, a lot of the other people who were on the show, actors that were on the show, uh, all died, and it's really weird how that how that happened. I remember some of you may remember him. Jerry Doyle played um, Garibaldi on Babylon Five. He was great, and I was a fan of him as an actor. And then he went into the world of talk radio, and he became a nationally syndicated talk radio host. And being in talk radio, I got the chance to meet him about 10 years ago, and I was thrilled to meet him. Got a picture with him. I think it's on my Instagram. And we talked a little bit about food, and we talked a little bit about Babylon 5, but we mostly talked about, I said to him, I can't believe you're still alive. I said, you got to be the only person on that show that's still alive. And he laughed and listed all the actors on that show that, that died. Lo and behold, he died. Three years after we had that conversation. So um, there are a lot of great actors from that show who have passed on. But a lot of the original cast members are coming back for this film. Bruce Broxleitner as John Sheridan. Claudia Christian as Susan Ivanova. Peter Jurassic as uh, Londo Malari. And I tell you, I don't read a lot of fiction. But I read a book years ago called Diplomatic Act by Peter Jurassic, which is loosely based. It's basically um, an actor plays an alien on a sci-fi TV show, just like he did. And aliens abduct this person thinking that he can solve an intergalactic crisis. It was uh, not totally dissimilar from Galaxy Quest, but uh, this was way before Galaxy Quest. Bill Moomy, who you may remember from Twilight Zone, he's coming back. A lot of other folks uh, that were involved in the show. So uh, I'm excited about this, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing it. I don't know what the timetable is, but they say the animated film is going to be a continuation of the original story, which followed the humans and the aliens inhabiting that space station Babylon 5, uh, and it was an early example, that show, which you could still check out in reruns, of serialized television. Back then, all the shows, especially syndicated shows like uh, Star Trek The Next Generation or Hercules or Xena, basically it was the same thing. Uh, there's, there's characters, something happens, they deal with whatever happens, and then you watch the next episode and it wouldn't have mattered what happened before it. Babylon 5 was more like Breaking Bad or The Sopranos or Billions, where if you miss an episode, you're screwed. You need to have seen what's going on in each episode. It was very groundbreaking in that way. And then shows like Battlestar Galactica, even Deep Space Nine, kind of followed in its um, in its footsteps. And I'm happy about this because J. Michael Straczynski has tried to revive this series several times over the years. 
And um, there may be other reboots as well, but I couldn't be happier about this. Very exciting. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on this or anything else. 800-848-9222, seven open lines. Let me say hello to Eddie in New Jersey. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. Uh, first of all, I wanted to give a, say hi to Brian Comey because I'm guessing there's a chance he might be listening now. So I just want to tell him that I'm a fan. But I wanted to comment on the airplane thing. And I just see this as a popularity grab, like sort of how you were saying that is like the one thing that you, the, the thing that you think Biden right. has done best on, you know, it's that kind of thing that no one could no Everyone likes it and he, he has nothing to lose by doing it. Do I hear a bird in the background? It's a truck driving by. A truck. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, well, yeah. I agree with you. But, Eddie, I don't want to burst your, your bubble here, but all politicians do things that they think are going to be popular. Right. When Donald so, Trump so is out there proposing um, not cutting Social Security or anything like that, he's doing that because he knows that's a popular political stance. Right. So I wouldn't have a problem with that per se, but on the other hand— What's he saying? That when the airline was, is at full, that's when they have to pay you. So what's the airline going to do? They're always going to shift the blame to other parties and say, oh, it was this third party who was at fault. It was the weather. They're never going to take the blame for it. Well, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how that's determined, right? So if an airline claims that, um, that uh, it's the weather and they had to cancel your flight, I imagine they wouldn't have to pay you. But if they had a crew that was not ready or they've overbooked or something along those lines, then I, I don't think they would be able to get away with that uh, so easily, Eddie. But uh, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. I'm just right, happy so. people are talking about it. I'm happy it's a part of the national conversation right now. I mentioned... Um, Andreas Katsela. See, I'm glad no one else is calling in right now because it gives me a chance to play one more Babylon 5 clip. I mentioned Andreas Katsalas, who uh, played Jakar on this show. Here is a, an example, and then we'll play the $1,000 Minute and talk to Brian Kilmeade, of the kind of stirring performance that you could hear and see on this show. Now, keep in mind, this is an alien, Jakar, an alien ambassador, a Narn. And he develops kind of a reputation later in the season and he a series, and he's got all these followers that almost worship him like a Muhammad style prophet. In the past we have had little to do with other races. Evolution teaches us that we must fight that which is different in order to secure land, food, and mates for ourselves. But we must reach a point where the nobility of intellect asserts itself and says no. We need not be afraid of those who are different. We can embrace that difference and learn from it. And uh, it's really just, I mean, that whole scene is good. I guess we couldn't play the whole thing, but it's really, he's such an interesting guy. All right, Uh, we're going to play the $1,000 Minute in a moment. If you're not familiar with the $1,000 Minute, the way this works is you're going to get 60 seconds to answer 10 trivia questions. If you can answer all 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then you will be $1,000 richer. Uh, So you can go ahead and dial right now, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, boom. uh, You can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, $1,000 all yours. Simple as that. You can go ahead and call right now. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is actually in one of the more recent episodes of uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, if memory serves. And uh, a fine song. A a fine song if uh, ever there was one. All right. Without further ado, um, let us see if we can't make someone a thousand air as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Let's welcome Mike in Westbury. Hello there, Mike. Hi. Mike, can you hear me? Yes, I'm here. Okay, Mike. Have you heard this segment before? Yes, I have. Okay, so you know what to do, right? You know the rules? I think so. Okay. Well, do you, do you have any questions? Uh, no. Okay. Well, if you're ready, we'll get started, okay? Okay. All right. What is the first letter of the alphabet? A. What is the name of the popular alcoholic drink made from fermented grapes? Wine. What is the name of the popular music group from Liverpool that's known for their hits, Hey Jude and Let It Be? What is the name of the famous scientist who's known for his theory of relativity? Einstein. What baseball team did Hall of Famer Mickey Mantle play for? Yankees. Who was the first leader of communist China? Chairman Mao. Who directed the 1972 film The Godfather? What is the name of the economic system in which individuals and businesses make economic decisions without government intervention? Capitalism. Who is the longest reigning WWE world champion? (laughs) Hulk Hogan. No, I'm sorry. We were out of time anyway. You did very well. You got eight correct. Uh, Bruno Sammartino, an immigrant success story. Uh, really one of the early strongmen. Uh, nobody's even come close to Bruno. Uh, Mike, a great effort. Eight correct. Uh, didn't know Bruno Sammartino and ran out of time. Hang on. Give Kenneth your information, and uh, we are going to give you a consolation prize of some sort. I mean, that's an effort that is worthy of some sort of really nice consolation prize. Maybe even a signed copy of of Brian Kilmeade's book, if that's a possibility. Uh, Brian Kilmeade is not only a New York Times bestselling author, not only the co-anchor of Fox and Friends, I think he's up to about 18 different shows that he does during the week, on the weekend when he's filling in for people, and on Fox Nation, but he's also one of the most listened to uh, nationally syndicated radio talk show hosts in the whole country. Brian, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for, for, thanks for being on. 
Frank, I remember Bruno San Martino. Do you remember some of the people he he fought against? Uh, I remember, first of all, the uh, historic. Uh, I I only watched Bruno much later in his career after his heyday. But as a student of pro wrestling, I'm aware of those uh, matches that he had with people like superstar Billy Graham and Buddy Rogers and uh, folks like that. So I, I didn't see yes, him. Yes, I, I remember. Bugsy McGraw, Ivan Koloff beat him. That's right. And for the, the controversy, I That's think, with, with uh, Billy Superstar Graham was, I think he pushed off on the turnbuckle That's to right. pin him. <laughs> and I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. Stan the Man Hansen had coins Stan in his the lariat, lariat which Hansen. some people thought right. was an elbow pad. That's, that's right. Um, this could be the subject of your next book, Brian, the, the Bruno San yes. Martino story. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about that or just 1970s wrestling, which I watched with my UHF circle antenna uh, on, in the afternoon. Who was your favorite and, the 70s wrestler? That's so interesting you asked that. I mean, you had the Blackjack Mulligan. Um, I'm one of the Blackjacks. I forgot the name. Yeah, of the well, Blackjack one. Mulligan is the, the tag was the days. father of one of my favorite wrestlers, Barry Windham, who uh, has had some health issues recently. But no, that's uh, that's great. All right, I, I, I can't get to go down this wrestling uh, rabbit hole with you because we'll, <laughs> you we'll run out so? of time. Yeah. Hey, uh, last night, uh, CNN being criticized by a lot of people on the left for allowing Donald Trump to uh, give answers to a, a cheering crowd of. Trump-leaning voters, a lot of people unhappy with CNN, saying it's one of their worst moments. What do we think, Brian? Is, is CNN the new conservative network? Is it the new home for Trump viewers? <laughs> yes. I, people are going to feel very comfortable there, especially their post-game show. They really were fair to him. I mean, uh, Caitlin Collins, must, someone must have said on one of the breaks that he's beating the hell out of you, so they did standing the last block, and she wouldn't let him finish one sentence. Um, and basically the crowd was for him. They were supposed to be independents, I thought, and, uh, and maybe they were independents that we just won over because Caitlin Collins spent the first 20 minutes on just January 6th. When are they going to realize? It's been litigated. It's back. People have made their decisions. Nobody cares. We're done. You know, you think the president played a role or he didn't play a role. He was all over it. He loved it. He hated it. It got out of control. Nancy Pelosi didn't provide security. How many times are we going to go over the same thing? This is why no one watches. Number two, at the end, they just didn't let him say a word. And and basically, you watch Donald Trump win over the crowd. And for people who watch CNN to think a former president who might be a future president who is leading the charge to get the nomination is not newsworthy for an hour. You can't be a news channel. So Tim Scott, when he declares, and Ron DeSantis, when he declares, they're not newsworthy. They're, they're, in, and they're um, um, fans. They're unbelievably talented, but they're in single digits. Nikki Haley's not newsworthy. Single digits, unbelievably qualified. Donald Trump did the job, wants to do it again. Almost all his policies look better than the current guy. Almost, almost every single one of them. Every one of them. Are, we were better off without Joe Biden. Keep in mind, too, people go, oh, the pandemic, he treated, he was better than pandemic. With a vaccine, more people died under Joe Biden. The vaccine provided, controversy or not, by Donald Trump. So he still couldn't get it done. So tell me where Joe Biden's been better. And when Donald Trump sticks to that, he, he probably is going to beat him head to head. He's up by eight points. I am surprised 
I am surprised they didn't give him at least some moments just to say, listen, where do you stand? They gave him one question, you know, what would you do first? That was from the audience. And before he could even answer, they quickly just jump in all over him. And they she, just want him to say that 2020 uh, that was, it was a real election. Well, he yeah, doesn't believe it. Well, I wanna, How I, many times do they need to, to ask him? Well, I want to ask you about the same that. thing every time. Um, so first on the uh, trying to pin him down for an answer, which you who've interviewed him many times, I'm sure can appreciate the difficulty of that at times. I, I Impossible. Did, I, I did give Caitlin Collins some credit for at least trying to pin him down to an answer on the uh, national abortion ban, because a lot of the other prospective Republican presidential candidates, they've been uh, in no uncertain terms saying what they would do on that. But you mentioned the issue of the 2020 elections, uh, which they spent a lot of time on. It was not a rigged election. It was not a stolen election. You and your supporters lost more than 60 court cases on the election. It's been nearly two and a half years can you publicly acknowledge that you did lose the 2020 election? Let me, let me just go on. If you look at True the Vote, they found millions of votes on camera, on government cameras, where uh, they were stuffing ballot boxes. What you just said there, Republican officials debunked those claims about fraudulent ballots. We want to give you a chance Who? tonight. Who? Republican officials Who? in Georgia and every single state. Uh, there is no your own election officials, Mr. Look, President. Uh, so we wanted to give you a chance. People afraid to take on the issue. All you have to do is take a look at government cameras. You'll see them. People going to 28 different voting booths to vote to put in seven ballots apiece. Mr. I mean, President, and they're all I have on to stop you there. So, uh, Brian, I don't think that you can objectively state that what President Trump said in that last sentence there is accurate. This was an it's opportunity not. for him to win over uh, maybe at least some independents and Democrats that don't typically watch uh, what with the networks that he goes on, including including Fox, and may not listen to this radio station. But he is sticking with this this election 2020 was rigged narrative. Do you, I understand that he believes it? But is it a is it a mistake strategically? Does he risk alienating people that he might win over on policy? Is it a mistake to keep harping on this? Well, I mean, if he, he's not going to change, you know what he does. By the way, his abortion. If you, you, you touched on your very first question on abortion, president didn't answer. The president wants to negotiate, and that's going to turn off pro-life people. They say, are you kidding me? Uh, You you can't negotiate. And for people, if he wants to win the general and says zero weeks, he's not going to win the general. Now, I know people listening to us right now are solid pro-life. Can't believe I just said that. He's not going to win the general because I don't make – I can't speak for 320 million people, but I think 70 percent – thinks you should be able to get abortion up to uh, up to uh, 15 weeks, 12 to 15 weeks. That's not my rules. That's not that doesn't matter what I think or you think. That's where the country is. So if he digs in too hard, that's great. He'll get the nomination. He have to backtrack uh, and the general because for the most part, saying kicking it to the states and Kansas saying zero weeks and kicking it back and Oklahoma saying zero weeks is not going to go nationally. So how does he say, I deliver the end of Roe v. Wade, and at the same time say zero weeks? He can't win the right. general. Right. And he had no answer. And Caitlin Collins stayed with her for five minutes. That's a real issue. I don't have a problem with trying to get to the bottom of that. And I don't have a problem with refusing to answer it. That's a politician. You know, Stephanopoulos will ask every question three times, and then he'll go, I just want to say for the record, move on. That's what she should have done. She kept saying the same thing. But Ron DeSantis saying six weeks um, is is really good 
in the to get the nomination, but it's not going to help him in the general. That's why Lindsey Graham walked out and said, "What can we agree on? Fifteen weeks?" People say, "Well, wait a sec. We just got rid of a federal law right. on abortion. Let's stay out of the abortion game." But he's saying that if Republicans can't get their message down, why don't you take it off the table? The um, this was one of the the first major appearance he did since the verdict in this uh, E. Jean Carroll uh, rape case. Very interesting verdict. Uh, They found that he uh, didn't rape her, but that he committed sexual assault, which if you look at the jury instruction, could have been anything up to including a kiss on the cheek that they deemed was non-consensual. Normally, if this was 15, 20, 25 years ago, this would be a devastating thing for a presidential candidate. This does not seem to be having any effect on the Trump campaign. What issue do you think this will be in the general election, Brian? You know, he had no pri- He wanted that question. He wanted it. And when, when Caitlin Collins says, I know you want to talk about this. So basically he had people laughing and, you know, some, you got to think general. His audience, if they were independents or undecided Republicans, they were all in. They believed the woman was lying and that the, um, and that the jury was rigged. Okay, but if you want independents, undecideds, or moderate Democrats, they're not going to like that answer. So I'm I'm just looking at this if you are an analyst. So, but he's going to he's not going to seriously be hurt by it. But when you start this race and say, "What am I missing?" Suburban women. This is not an issue they're going to embrace. Nor do I think they'll embrace his response. I don't know how you feel. Well, I uh, I think um, and I think a lot of the people there might have been independents in that audience yesterday. But New Hampshire is one of the states where independents get to vote in Republican primaries. And in 2016, Trump did very well with the independents that could vote in New Hampshire. I think um, to your point, I think it bodes well for a primary audience. And I think the strategy on the part of the Trump team now is in order to uh, get to the general that you have to make sure that you're nominated for first. I, I don't see it winning over many people, but I, I think there if you listen to what a lot of the legal analysts are saying, there's a very good chance this could be overturned on appeal. I think Trump's commentary about the things like the Access Hollywood tape and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I think that may uh, alienate uh, some female (laughs) suburban voters more than um, more than the verdict itself. You had a terrific interview this week with uh, former New Jersey governor and potential uh, presidential candidate Chris Christie. He talked about Trump's response to this verdict. This is what he said. What does this do for the Donald Trump candidacy? I just think it adds more weight to it, Brian. And, and, and look, you know, his response yesterday to me was ridiculous, that he didn't even know the woman. I mean, you know, how many coincidences are we going to have here with Donald Trump, Brian? I mean, he must be the unluckiest SOB in the world. He just has, you know, random people he's never met before who are able to convince the jury that he sexually abused them. I mean, this guy, it's one person after another, one woman after another. The stories just continue to pile up. And I think we all know he's not unlucky um, that he he engaged in this kind of conduct. But And he talked about it himself in the Access Highwood tape. And I was there with him when the Access Highwood tape came out. Let me tell you something, Brian. He was embarrassed. He was embarrassed then. He's tried to change the whole history now. But he was embarrassed then. Look, this kind of conduct is unacceptable for somebody that we call a leader um, and and him wanting to take leadership again. And so I, do I think this is a silver bullet that ends Donald Trump's candidacy? No. I just think it's additional weight of evidence that people are going to look at and say, 
you know, if he's this unlucky, Brian, if, if none of this has really happened, he's this unlucky, we don't want a guy this unlucky as president either. Uh, Brian, great interview. Um, you, one wonders if that's how Chris Christie views Donald Trump and his conduct, why he was such an enthusiastic supporter in both 2016 and 2020. Do you think there's a lane for Chris Christie in this presidential contest? If it, if there's if they level the playing field right now, it's Donald Trump. I mean, I'm shocked. He's up by 20. Uh, see what kind of progress Ron DeSantis makes and see if things start evening out. This is what uh, Chris Christie has. He's really bright. He's got the he's got the Constitution down pat. He's a conservative. He was successful in New Jersey. Didn't end with the strongest numbers like Bloomberg did not end with strong numbers in New York. Uh, even though he's considered successful mayor, he ended up leaving with 30 percent. And I don't think Chris Christie ended with high approval. But after he won re-election, he was sky high into the bridge controversy took place. So I think that when he gets on stage, if he gets in interviews, he gets in town halls, his strength is his performance. Let's see if America will take another look. This is going to be their second look at him. But would Chris, would, would Chris Christie, and this is what I challenged him on, and Chris Sununu, and... I'm trying to think who else goes after him this way. Uh, well, yeah, just basically those two in particular. Say, well, Donald Trump failed to build the wall. Donald Trump failed to balance the budget. Donald Trump uh, failed to, um, you know, uh, when it comes to his policies, I, I you know, for build a wall. We all know why he didn't build the wall. And when it came to the pandemic, uh, when it came to spending, yeah, we could have reined it could have reined it in a little, but for the most part, when the pandemic happened. The Democratic Congress gave him more money than he even asked for. They flooded the zone because they told America to stop working. So I think if you if you look at him and say, well, look how much debt he added, that's a Joe Biden line. Because that's not looking at the issue in which he had it. I mean, we added so much debt because we had print money and tell people to stop working for the first time in 120 years. And I don't, we didn't even do it in 120 years ago since the first uh, you know epidemic, pandemic. So that, I think, is a little unfair. I think that if you criticize his performance— um, I think it's a dead end street because Republicans loved Donald Trump's performance. They didn't like his behavior at times. So it's the behavior. I'll give you more discipline. I'll execute better. I understand the system better. Uh, and and I, I'm more I'm less volatile and more predictable. I'm not going to be firing people every 10 days. I mean, that's the type of thing where I think he's vulnerable. But I think the Republicans are really happy with his policies. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that was sort of the DeSantis lane as he's offering or at least trying to offer Trumpism without the Trump. Um, very quickly, Brian, and I know you got a busy day ahead of you on both Fox and Friends and on uh, the radio, a star-studded uh, list of guests on radio, including Admiral Stavridis, former Attorney General Matt Whitaker, uh, Cal Thomas. It's going to be it's going to be something. But um, this Hunter Biden situation yesterday, James Comer, the chair of the oversight panel, revealed that the Biden family members are business associates. They receive more than $10 million from companies run by foreign nationals. Uh, What do you think this means for the DOJ Hunter Biden probe? What do you think this means for Joe Biden's political prospects? That was a great press conference. Watched the whole thing back. It was full of substance. And here's the underlying story. He made millions of dollars through over 20, right now, over 20 companies. And nobody knows what the companies are for. What are they for? Donald Trump builds hotels in Turkey. Wow, what is he doing with Turkey? They're an enemy. No, excuse me. He built a hotel. It was a deal. He was a businessman. 
in Saudi Arabia is in deals. There's a there's a Scottish there's a Scottish uh, golf course. So I so you don't like they built a, a Scottish golf course. You don't like the deal he cut. All right, have at it. But with Joe Biden, millions of dollars, nine family members benefiting. We don't know what they got. What do they have? A father, an uncle, a brother, a grandfather who is chairman of foreign relations, former vice president, now president. He had influence. What did they get in return with these 20 companies? What breaks did they get as things start panning out and we start seeing the China policy, as we saw the Ukrainian policy, as you wonder what's going on with the China initiative that left the first day he got into office, the 20,000 Chinese that have just stormed through the border. I mean, what did he get from Mexico, Carlos Slim? Why is it that we're getting six million illegals storming through the Mexican border? Why did he talk to the Mexican president when he did not know a thing that they said? Well, what is going on with all these business deals? Why don't other people ask those questions? But right now I'm looking at Time magazine. Uh, Not that people read that anymore, but it's still online. Uh, Newsweek. Uh, Here it is. Comer's investigation of Biden. Relative swings and misses. New York Times. House Republican report finds no evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden. Did you listen to the press conference? Do you have a follow-up question? You know the follow-up question one of them was? Why don't you investigate Donald Trump? Are you guys paying attention? Everyone's investigating Donald Trump. And he's not president right now. And they're investigating him. We're telling you the guy's a multimillionaire with classified documents in every location that he's been in. And he will not answer the question about what they got and why nine family members are benefiting and why he was with his son almost in every country in which deals were cut. Brian, uh, it's coming to Joe Biden big time. I got to run. Check him out this morning on Fox and Friends and on radio and, of course, Saturday on One Nation at 8 p.m. Eastern for a real in-depth look at the issues of the day. Thanks, Brian. Go get him. 800-848-9222. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. singing The Other Side of Midnight, no longer available on iTunes, but people have been emailing me about how to get a copy of this song. Email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com, and I will pass you on to Stevie G, and hopefully he can facilitate a sale. Without further ado, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mark! Cheech. America, oh America, look what's happened to you. They removed the Ten Commandments and the Pledge of Allegiance from school. They allow girls to join the Boy Scouts. They're attempting to take your First and Second Amendments away. Senator Joseph McCarthy was right. Rusty. Yeah, don't think that Trump trusts the Messiah for one minute. He knows better. They just feed Kool-Aid to each other. David. Yeah, regarding what Kilmeade said about the Biden family, 
How about Donald Trump's millions of dollars from the Saudis, Ivanka's Chinese patents, or Jared's $2 billion deal with the Saudis and the Emiratis? Neil! Uh, how about the guy in the Bronx uh, stop hating and uh, use his brains for once in a while? Jerry! Trump is the most vetted person that's ever lived on the face of the earth, and he's still standing, and he has every issue right. No one's going to leave him who's with him already. And he won 2020. B.S. Gary! Thank you, Donald Trump, at the CNN town hall for not trying to start World War III with uh, Putin. Amen. I'll agree with that. Rich! Hey, I just want to say... Uh, you say one prayer for the person with cancer. You say two prayers for the person that takes them to and from the treatment center. And finally, Marianne. Make that finally, Leo. Okay. Well, that about slams the lid on things for today. Um, back tomorrow. Can't believe it's Friday already. Uh, we got to ask Frank anything. Jeffrey Lyons is going to be here. Jeffrey Lichtman is going to be here. And I got some other fun stuff up my sleeve for tomorrow that we didn't get to because we were a little free form in the first hour. We'll, we'll use those tomorrow, and we'll see what other news breaks in the next 20 hours. There's no telling in this climate, that's for sure. Until then, Frank Moreno, good day. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.